Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 59. This is part three in my North Texas series. Um, today's episode is with my friend Colin Hinton, a great drummer that I met in school and who now lives in New York City. Um, I have started scheduling um, a couple of in-person interviews for like the second half of May. So I'm looking forward to kind of getting back to that, that type of an in-person vibe and especially to having my normal sound quality standards. Um, I have I've struggled a little bit with Zoom, although I think this episode is maybe like this this episode with Colin. I've I've maybe uh, finally figured out a little bit more how to not totally interrupt my guest, um, and you know, resulting in that kind of like blah, blah, blah kind of thing that happens on Zoom when two people are talking over each other. Um, so I, I think, I think you'll find there's, there's minimal, minimal of that in this episode. Um, I don't have really any other news. The big news is my album is out. I already told you guys. Um, but in case you didn't listen to last week's episode, my album is out. It's called Masks and it's on all of the streaming platforms. I'm extremely proud of it. Um, I would love for you to listen to it and I would especially love for you to tell me what you think. And the digital art series is still live. So, um, you know, I didn't just make that for like the launch. I mean, I kind of, I offered it to um, anyone on my mailing list early, like in advance of the public release, but it's still, um, it's still a, a separate entity that I, that I feel really proud of and I, and I think is special. So um, it's, it's all the music and a lot of visual art, um, some that you've already seen and some that I haven't posted publicly and storytelling elements and just it, there's a lot of extra content there that um I think is is powerful and so if you're looking for something a little bit more and you want to experience kind of like a um a multimedia project um in a in a slightly different way than maybe other things you've consumed um you can still do that so the the entrance point for the digital series is emvocals.com slash invite hyphen only um, yeah, I'm really proud of that too. And it has like places for you to offer like your comments. Um, so it can be kind of interactive. Um, it's, it's, it's special. So yeah, if you're looking for some, some, something to do, um, consider that. So, um, now I'm going to tell you about Colin and I have to say up front, Colin's bio has a lot of names in it that I'm not totally sure how to pronounce. So to Colin's friends, um, I'm so sorry. I'll do my very best. Um, yeah. Okay. Here's Colin's bio. Colin Hinton is an active member of Brooklyn's creative music community. A drummer, percussionist, and composer, his music draws from the jazz and free music traditions of Henry Threadgill, Anthony Braxton, and Mulhaw Richard Abrams, as well as 20th century classical composers, Messian, Scriabin, Feldman, and Grizzy. He has performed in the U.S., Canada, Central and South America, and Asia, and has had his compositions performed in the U.S., Italy, and Canada. An active educator in the New York City area, Colin has taught at the City College of New York, numerous music academies, and he runs a private teaching studio. He has given clinics at the City College of New York and the University of Toronto. Hinton studied drums with Ed Sof, Taishan Sori, Dan Weiss, Ralph Peterson, and Ari Honig, and composition with Ingrid Laubrock, Taishan Sori, and Eric Wobbles. 
He studied at the University of North Texas and City College of New York, completing a BFA in jazz performance and an MA in music performance with a focus in 20th century theory. Um, The next paragraph has just many, many names of cool people that Colin has performed with, um, awesome recordings he's been on, and also great venues that he's performed in. Um, I'm going to skip it for the sake of reading, but you can consult the show notes and the blog post for this episode and see all of it. Um, Moving on. Hinton currently leads contemporary classical and avant jazz quintet Simulacra, free jazz and post-punk hybrid Glass Bath, and a piano trio featuring Santiago Liebsen and Ivan Opsvik. Colin also co-leads Ocelot, a collaborative trio featuring Yuma Usaka and Kat Torin, whose debut recording will be released in fall 2020. Hinton is also the co-founder and co-curator of Off-Brand Music Series, a monthly music series hosted at Branded Saloon in Brooklyn that celebrates the avant-garde and experimental music scene. Off-Brand Music Series has been running monthly since January of 2018. Um, and I want to just also um, say to you guys before I, before I, uh, before I end this intro that as I've been choosing um, my colleagues and peers for this series, I've really tried to, um, to reach out to people who've taken different paths um, since, since we knew each other at, at North Texas. And Colin is certainly one of those people. He's doing such cool things right now. And I know that you guys will love his thoughts and insights um, and his story. So without further ado, here's Colin. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary. And sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. We need deep, meaningful connections, but we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by The Voice Straw. Back in episode 36, I interviewed Justin Timberlake's voice teacher, the amazing Mindy Pack. Mindy just launched this incredible new product designed to improve the quality of singing and vocal performance through science and proper technique. The Voice Straw is a vocal training tool for singers, actors, and speakers. It helps relieve tension, strain, breathiness, cracking, and flipping in the voice. Scientifically shown to improve singing technique, a must-have tool for anyone looking for vocal success. Head to www.voicestraw.com and enter promo code ARTIFICE10, that's all caps, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-1-0, for 10% off your purchase today. like as a creative child and I want to specify that I like don't I don't specifically care what mediums you were into as a little kid sure what were you what were you doing that was creative as, as a child well I actually I started playing piano when I was four wow um, um was that like a was that like a family did everyone play the piano or no I don't I don't come from a musical family at all my parents kind of didn't know what to do about it how did uh, you how did you communicate to them at such a young age that that's like something you wanted? How did they know? 
Well, I remember, I remember I had a friend, I guess it would have been kindergarten, preschool, something like that. Um, I had a friend that had a piano at his house and I wanted to go over to this friend's house all the time, not necessarily to like hang out or whatever, but because they had a piano. Um, However you convey that in like four-year-old language. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Okay. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, you, you just wanted to go to this friend's house to play the piano. That's so funny. I feel like I had friends who like, I went to their houses for like the trees that were in the backyard or something. Well, I mean, like, obviously there was that too. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like a weird, like prodigy music only kid. Like I still had like a pretty normal childhood, but I do. Yeah. I do remember like just going over to this kid's house all the time. And my parents finally kind of put it together that I was going over there for the piano. You love that. And so I think they, they like put me in lessons with a pretty good local teacher. That's great. And, um, you know, I, I really wanted to practice. And so I think, I can't remember if they got me like a, like a shitty keyboard first, but eventually we got like a, like a not super great upright piano. And like, I just practiced a lot and really loved it and did well in lessons. Um, um what do you do you like I mean I'm sure it was long enough ago that you don't like remember remember it but like what do you remember about maybe like I don't know did your do do you remember like your parents talking to you in any specific way about like like the fact that you were like interested in music like I'm really just wondering like when or how it started like informing kind of your self-concept as a child um, I don't know that that it was ever really that clear. Like I came from, um, like a very kind of business oriented family. Yeah. Like I was, um, I was the youngest child. I had a sister that was six years older. My mom was a special education teacher before she had my sister. And then after that, she was a stay at home mom. And my dad, uh, my dad started a business. Um, and like, it was, I wouldn't say they didn't like discourage the arts or anything, but it was never really like at the the forefront of like our familial life. Yeah, um, I guess I'm just, I'm guessing more wondering like, you know, I, I imagine if you have a child that has like an interest that early, you you may like have thoughts about it and or like maybe your piano teacher, um, you know, like, do, do you remember, like, having any adults be like, you really like this? Or, like, you know, I just am curious, like, if that was something that, like, the adults around you, like, reflected at you in any any sort of way. I don't think so. I remember my parents thinking I was really good. Cool. I, I wasn't. Like, I was never a great pianist. Like, I was, I was like, a, a competent, like, young pianist, but I was nothing, like... Um, I didn't know there was, um, how do I say this? I didn't know there was like a professional world like for that to be an outlet in. For me, it was just something really fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I got I got really drawn to a lot of music when I was pretty young. Um, my dad listened to a lot of like really good music. Um, he was really I'm trying to remember what I listened to like that he had on all the time. Like a lot of CCR Okay. Uh, a lot of like kind of folk country stuff, like a lot of Hank William Jr. 
uh, a lot of Johnny Cash, like that kind of stuff was always on in the house. That's awesome. And then as my sister, my sister was six years older than me. So she was in high school when I was in elementary school and she started getting really into like a lot of punk rock and stuff and grunge. And she kind of passed that my way. So by the time I was like seven or eight, I was listening to a bunch of music that none of my friends knew anything about. And I was, you know, yeah. Um, so I, I was just, I didn't really know that it was like a viable career option. That was never a goal. It was just something I was always really interested in. You know, I think as like, as a little, as a small child, like unless you have adults in your life who are professional musicians or professional artists, like you, of course you don't know. Right. I mean, like, but other, outside of that, like everything was super normal. Like I, I played a lot of video games. I skateboarded. Yeah. Um, I loved playing with Legos. I liked drawing a lot. I was really bad at it, like yeah. really, really bad. And I, I tried really hard and just always got frustrated and stopped. But I, but my sister was a really great artist, um, still is. Um, so Do yeah, you, I mean, like there were. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, you. I mean, I was just going to ask if you remember what you liked about like piano or music or or leaving Legos. I mean, just do you remember like what you liked about creativity? I know retrospect is tricky, but like, I like to ask adults these questions because I even think that like your kind of self-imposed narrative is like significant maybe. Sure. Um, You're kind of your own mythology. It's true. And I like, that's something I'm, I'm super interested in. Me too. Uh, Just that concept as a whole. Like, I don't know because I didn't get into improvised music until much later. Like that didn't start till I was like 13 or so. So like I grew up, you know, huh? That still seems so early to me. Yeah. I I got very lucky. There's actually, there's a pretty cool story about that. I I can tell later. Um, I will ask about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was like, it was definitely like a defining moment in my, in my upbringing. But like, so I grew up, you know, typical, classical piano lessons doing like equal parts um you know like standard classical piano repertoire slash like learning pop tunes but not like learning you know this chord fall or this piece follows like this chord progression or what it was all very through composed so it was like um, yeah yeah it was very task oriented it wasn't necessarily creative in that regard not saying that people who um who play like classical music or like through composed rock music or whatever are not created just at that stage in my life. It wasn't, it wasn't like, Oh, I have to interpret this. It was like, you press these buttons and if you do it right, it's going to sound kind of like the song that you're trying to play. Yeah. Um, But like, it's funny. I haven't thought about Legos in a long time, but that was something that like, you know, I'd buy or my parents would buy me like the box sets or whatever. And I would, most of the time I would put them together, but outside of that, like, I really liked just doing my own thing. Yeah. Uh, You know, I like to ask these questions in this way because I like, I think you're kind of, you're stumbling on something that is like one of my favorite topics, which is like the origins of your, your creative identity and the origins of like your, your skill set and your medium, like are not always the same. Um, Right. Which is why, like, I like to start at the beginning um, 
And I think lots of times, like the, the, the pieces that come together in order to bring us into like an adulthood where we are doing art or, you know, have creativity as a main part of our lives. Um, the, the origins of those things are, are just interesting to me. Um, so yeah, so I'm curious about both. Like, so if you can, like, remember, like, you know, if, if music didn't feel creative back then, which like, I feel the same way. Um, what drew you, do you, do you have an idea of what drew you to the music? And then like, what did you like about like the creativity of like the Legos or the drawing? I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that like music didn't feel creative. Cause even at that stage, it's still art and you're still like, I just mean, you know, even like, with, like you said, it's task oriented. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to think like the create, the creativity and like piano to that, uh, at that level for me at that age, um, was more like, like the way, cause I, uh, after I left North Texas, I got really into composition. Like that's one of my, my big things now. And something that I still take away from like my early days of piano, like before I really knew the theory or anything was like, um, I still think of chords as having shapes. I didn't initially think of it that way, but just because piano was my first instrument, it's like, okay, a D major chord has this, like I almost picture it like a, um, like a triangle. I'm if the that same makes way. sense. I, I think of it totally the same way. Or like an E flat major is a triangle, but upside down. Totally. You know, and then when you start adding extensions, like the same thing. It's still. Yeah, it's, I, it's really useful. I teach that to my adults too. Yeah. Um, but so like it was creative, it was creative in that regard of like, like, oh, like if I take this shape, is it going to sound the same if I do it here? And like, mm. like if we're, if we're talking about like the shape of D major, if I start that on F, like it's going, it's not going to sound the same. And why is that? So I found like, you know, I it was very pattern oriented and I found that super creative. Um, with Legos, it was just like, I'm going to do my own thing. Like, I don't care. Like, what do I feel like building today? And do I have the things to do it? If, yeah. if I don't, like, how do I work around it? But my, oh, so, no, 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 no. I was going to, I was going to skip forward a bit. Go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I like that. I think I'm pattern oriented too. I mean, I don't, we didn't have that many classes together in school because you were like a year ahead of me, even though we're the same age. Um, but I've always been under the impression that like we have similar types of uh, like ways of thinking about stuff. That's, that's just like, that's my impression. I could be wrong. I think I'll know by the end of this conversation. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I didn't, that's definitely something we can approach. But, um, but yeah, I, I, feel, I feel similarly about those things. And I, I think for me, like when I was learning piano as a little kid, like it was a little bit different in my family because we, it was just like, you have to take piano lessons. Like all the kids in the family took piano. I'm the oldest, so I didn't have like, um, you know, I wasn't in, really informed by like the musical identities of like anyone else in my family. You didn't have an older sibling giving you Soundgarden records when you were like I, five? I'm jealous of it though. Like, <laughs> so like mesmerized by like the, the kids my age that I knew who like were into cool music. And I would just be like, I would just think like, how do you know about that? Like, I just had no, I didn't realize like you just have older siblings or like really cool parents. Um, 
But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember having like feelings about how recorded music affected me and having a gut yes. instinct that like piano was an entrance point to that. Um, I, I very definitely relate to that. Like I remember, I remember, and I guess like all of the creativity and uh, like interpretation shit that I mentioned before, it doesn't really apply like when you're that age, because I still related very much to like the expressionism of sitting down at the piano and like playing the song. It didn't matter if it was, you know, super cheesy or whatever. It was like, I want to do this. And I want, I'm like, I want to have an emotional attachment to That's whatever it is exactly I'm doing. What I was going to say, like, you know, sitting down to play like hot crossed buns or whatever, like it wasn't about hot crossed buns. It was just like this thing, this feeling of like, I can push this, button there's a piano like there's a piano right here so oh, nice. <laughs> I'm like I'm at the piano um yeah th that feeling of like I can push this key and like this thing will happen and like just you know playing with like legato and like you know just as a child with limited motor skills being kind of just really compelled and fascinated by like my ability to like create these sound waves um and like, it wasn't that like piano felt creative per se to me, but I felt creative, like just in my interaction with the, the piano. I think, I think that's a way better way to put it than what I was trying to get at. Yeah. I relate, I relate to that. Yeah. And I think like really being creative with music was something that for me happened later and it happened with singing first and then with composing, um, and when I was actually, you know, playing the piano, it was not, I wasn't creating the music. Like I was always playing things that I had, could read. Um, but I felt creative about like the actual, like uh, instigation of the sound waves. Right. Um, yeah. And the dynamics and stuff. Um, but I, like you, I think I was, I was experimenting with more improvisational types of creativity in drawing in just like playing, you know, pretend games. Um, yeah, like working a different part of my brain in that way. Totally. And I, I do definitely remember like, like pretty, pretty much a constant theme throughout like my childhood and especially my teenage years, no matter what, what it was, like I always seemed slightly hesitant to take kind of like the, um, I guess like the more traveled path. Like I always kind of wanted to do stuff mm. my way. Uh, like may, a, a lot of times to my detriment, but a lot of times more like just being like, can I work around this? Or what if I don't totally agree with this idea of what this thing should be? And that manifested a lot, like in my, in my early piano lessons. And I'm sure my piano teacher was very frustrated, but she was a very, very patient woman. Um, you but it was like, and and I I think about I think about that now with someone that you know teaches as much as I do. Like the fine line between like having my students be like, okay, you need to know what this is and be able to play it this way. But if you have a good reason for doing it another way, like I totally encourage you to do that. Amen. Yeah. Um, yeah. You had like a little a little like authority thing as a small child. Oh, I I think I had an authority thing for the last 30 something years um do you like in retrospect and again with this kind of like self-imposed narrative do you do you feel like that is an important part of like your 
like artistic self? Which, which part specifically? Whatever you want. I mean, just any, any of that kind of like questioning or like, is there another way? Like, I mean, I, I'm wondering if you brought it up because it feels like significant to you. I mean, I think, yes, I, I think it does because I like, um, I mean, the music I was playing when I was at North Texas is very different from what I do now. Yeah. I had like a, uh, not necessarily a career change, but like really reevaluated what I was doing with music in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if I go back to kind of how my brain has always functioned in that regard, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Can you like elaborate a little bit? Like, what do you mean? Well, like, um, I don't feel like I ever, um, how do I say this? Like there was never really an end game for me. And like, as soon as I figured out how something worked, it wasn't like, okay, I want to be the best at doing this thing that I know how it works. Like mm -hmm. that, that to me never felt exciting. It was just like, okay, like what's, what's yeah. the next thing? Um, like and I, like, so I, get, I get bored. Like I, I like learning. And I like being in like a, an exploratory type of a state. And as soon as something feels too like comfortable, I just like, I get bored. Yeah, like it starts to stagnate. Um, and I feel like the musicians I've always been drawn to were people that maybe had, had similar ideas about like pushing, pushing whatever boundary it is that they wanted to, or maybe maybe not even intentionally just like doing stuff the way they heard it and mm -hmm. take it or leave it. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you started taking piano lessons when you're four. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in just like the way that these kinds of things correspond with like human development, which is why, like, I like to start with like a child brain. Um, so can you tell me like, you know, what else, what else happened in terms of like either your like creativity and or um, your musicianship by the time, you know, up until you're about like 12. Like what, what is- oh God, I'm trying to, trying to go back here. Yeah, I, I can be more specific. Um, did you start, when did you start playing drums? So I got a drum set when I was nine. Okay. Uh, I got one for Christmas and it was actually, kind of similar to how I ended up like taking piano lessons and getting a piano. I don't, I don't remember what made me interested in drums, it's the but best. I remember, huh? It's the best instrument. Ah, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about that, but um, it's, I mean, it's a, yeah, drums are great. I, like that's, yeah. Uh, I do remember like becoming obsessed with it and I would ask my mom constantly to take me to Guitar Center, not because I wanted to buy anything, but because I could go mess around on the drum sets that they had set up there. Yeah. And so like after doing this for six plus months, uh, I woke up one Christmas morning and there was there was a drum set there. And I was like, this is cool. Um, I, have, I have so many questions. Why were you interested in drums? I, I seriously, I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't remember what drew me to that. There's no, there's no defining moment in my childhood or, or memory I have where I saw 
someone playing drums and was like, that's cool. Or um, I, I imagine for me, what it was is by that point, I was listening to like a lot of grunge and kind of starting to really get into some punk rock stuff. And I wasn't hearing any piano on that. Um, I see. Yeah. And do you remember, but like, I was hearing a lot of drums. Yeah. Do, do you remember? I mean, again, this is so like you're nine. So like, I don't, you know, what, what do you remember? But you know, as a nine year old to be like really interested in like punk, like, were you aware that like not that many other nine-year-olds were like interested in punk? Like, was that a thing? One friend, there was one friend I had uh, in elementary school that was like super into all of that music. And I'm not totally sure how he got into it. I I think he just had really cool parents, Um, but he was an only child. But so like him and I would, would hang out and listen to like, God, I'm trying to remember what bands we were even checking out then. Like, I think I heard Minor Threat for the first time around that time. And I definitely heard like Black Flag. Um, Like all this crazy music that like just. I remember loving the sound and the energy of it. But like as far as the, you know, political and social aspects of that music, that didn't come till way later. But I was just like, this is awesome. Um, I feel like people always hate like answering questions like this, but I'm, I'm, I like to ask them anyway. Um, did you like, do you remember having any sort of like feelings about like that it was unique? Like, did you f- feel like I'm kind of like, did you tell yourself things about yourself or like think that it meant any certain things that you were like interested in something that wasn't like what all the other kids were interested in? I mean, I remember, I do remember becoming aware of that at a pretty young age. Uh, middle school was pretty shitty for me because of that. And high school was yeah. too, although I'm hesitant to say like high school was shitty for that specific reason. Totally. But well, um, I think people don't, they don't like the question because they, they think it's going to maybe mean something about their adult selves. And I just think like, again, like in a human development kind of way, like when you're a child, and your identity is so fragile, and especially if for like whatever reason you you feel kind of different. Like I I don't know. I think those like small things can really like they can really kind of set you on a path. So I'm always I'm curious I, about it. I think so too, and this is something I've talked about with with other people our age, especially people that teach um, that teach music or or anything really. But I feel like for for our generation, like music was such a um, a defining piece of where you fit in socially at your schools. And I, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. In my experience teaching teenagers, it doesn't seem like, um, like their friend groups or their extracurricular activities or just the way that they navigate, like the social aspects of school coincide with their musical tastes. Whereas I remember very specifically, like, social cliques were divided pretty evenly by like these yeah. are the people that are into to this music or whatever and like these are the people who, I don't I don't I'm obviously I'm painting with a very broad brush here but I remember that being like a pretty pretty across the board thing well yeah and I think like especially in an age before there was internet and all we had was like magazines and recordings it it could kind of give you a blueprint for 
yeah, like what you might wear or like, you know, what, just what kind of an adult you might be, or I don't know, but that's why I'm curious, like, you know, if as a nine-year-old or, you know, as a young kind of child, you felt any certain like identity connection with like the musicians that you saw like playing this music or the people that you knew who also listened to it. Oh yeah. I mean like totally, totally. And I did, you know, I did all the cringe worthy clothing choices of, you know, the late nineties and early two thousands following like, yeah, yeah. I mean like bleached spiky hair and like super tight shirts, but baggy jeans, like all, all of that crap. I did all of it. Um, so like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I mean, I love it. Like, you know, again, like, I mean, when I started this podcast, like, I think a lot of what I'm interested in is like, I, I love creative adults. I love adults who've, who've chosen to remain creative. And I'm totally fascinated by the variety in our backgrounds, the variety in like how we got to the places we are. Um, I'm, I'm so curious about it. So, um, so I like to try to kind of trace some of those things back. Okay. So you, you, um, around the time that you started playing drums, um, like, did you think of yourself like to the best of your memory, did you think of yourself as like a kid who plays piano and drums or did you think where you started to think of yourself as like, I'm a young musician? a good question because i also during middle school i briefly played guitar for like two years but i mean like when i say i played guitar like i learned like four chords and then i knew you know power chords so i could play you know punk songs or whatever yeah um i think around a pretty big turning point for me was in eighth grade i joined band yeah and that was like my first time really outside of like getting together with friends in like seventh grade and you know banging on drums while they're just making noise on guitar I think that was my real first experience of like making music with other people in some kind of situation where there was like a respected authority figure giving guidance um and that was that was when I started taking drum lessons for for the first time like before that I was self-taught you had you had a drum set for five years and like just were well it's like three three nine how old are you in eighth grade 14 13 13 13 14 yeah something like that yeah i guess i had a drum set for like yeah wow i hadn't thought about that yeah um but but like taking piano lessons that whole time right yeah and but i had like a pretty extensive background in playing piano And, you know, obviously, like, in piano, we were doing theory and ear training and all that stuff. So it was just kind of shifting those skills, because I would just listen to things that were on the radio or records that I had and be like, it sounds like the drummer's doing this. And so I would sit down and kind of work out, like, really basic beats and try and figure out the coordination for them. But I mean, like, I was, I was self-taught, like, wasn't anything great but I had I had a lot of fun doing it and then I started getting in band and then I that was when I you know if you're taking private lessons in band you were you know you were doing like rudimental snare drum or learning how to play marimba or xylophone or yeah. uh glockenspiel which that stuff was really 
pretty easy for me at first because I was like, oh, I, yeah. I played piano for almost a decade. Yeah. Like, this is cool. Now I'm just hitting these notes with sticks. Totally. Yeah. Actually, I, I sort of love that that drums was just exploratory for you for such a, a good chunk of time. Like, I have to imagine that that changes your relationship with the instrument. Uh, you know, that's something I've I've thought about a lot. I will say um, I definitely had a lot easier of a time doing like the theory courses when I got to North Texas than a lot of the drummers I started with just because I had been playing piano for a long time and already knew a decent amount about theory. I was not good at it at North Texas because I'd never really done counterpoint before, but it was easier for me to piece together as opposed to being just thrown into it and be like, I don't even know how to read bass clef. Yeah. Well, I meant more like just the fact that you were able to play with your drum set for so many years before you had a teacher. Like, I mean, for, for me, drum, like drums initially, like I just wanted to play along to like, rock tunes yeah um, I mean I guess I'm just like maybe I'm totally projecting but yeah I, I I I just I like the idea that like you were just like alone getting to know your instrument without like an authority figure like starting that relationship that way like it just seems seems nice to me yeah that is pretty cool actually I hadn't I had never thought of it like that I know it did like I don't think I was a very good student when I've first started taking drum set lessons. And that's probably, probably why? partially the reason why. Yeah. Cause yeah. Cause you already like kind of knew your drum set without the context of someone telling you how to play it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, like I liked lessons, but I didn't, you know, if I was going to sit down and play, I never thought of it. Like I wasn't practicing. Anytime I sat down to the drum set, I was playing along to records or my version of practicing was like, I want to figure out what, what this beat is that this drummer is playing on this record I'm hearing. And if I need to practice it and sit down and break it down to try and do whatever most likely wrong interpretation of it I was playing, that was what I thought of as practice. It was very different from how I thought about like practicing piano. Right. And so then, you know, enter eighth grade band and all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, like I actually have to sit down. Like this guy wants me to be able to play like, a double stroke roll or whatever. And now I have to sit down and just do this repetitively until I can get this motion. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I mean, especially since you started playing piano, like with a teacher so young, I just, I think it's cool that like your, your, your second instrument and what's now like your main instrument. Um, you just had a totally different like process with it. I don't yeah, know. I guess that maybe, is. Maybe it's nothing. <laughs> Seems interesting. I mean, I think I think it transferred over because pretty, very very shortly after that was when um, was when I got like really serious about drums, yeah. and then you know my my thought process and attitude towards practicing and every everything else kind of changed. Um, well, that's why like I like I stop people around like twelve because I know that like in like our American culture usually like middle school is when you start getting like serious about stuff and have like adults you know monitoring your progress in different ways you know of course there are children who get serious about their instruments earlier and there are people who don't get serious about their instruments until later but like pretty commonly I think middle school is kind of the time when 
you, you maybe make that kind of a switch between like, this is something I do that's kind of fun, that's sort of play. Um, and like, this is something that I'm like, kind of serious about. Yeah, I think me joining band was was kind of the beginning of that um, that process. Um, is there anything else you want to say about like what was going on with your with your creative mind like up until the time you joined band? Like if like if you can connect back the part of your brain that like composes now, is there anything that you felt like was significant in your development like up until that point? I think probably the best thing I had going for me up until that point was that I just listened to a ton of music yeah. and I got exposed to a lot of different kinds of music through what my dad was listening to. My mom listened to a lot of the same stuff, but she was also really into country music and classical music. And I remember her having the, um, the soundtracks to like some, some musicals and my sister was all over the map. She went through a lot of musical phases, like, uh, she got, she showed me like, you know, punk rock and a lot of grunge stuff. Although, you know, at the time we were growing up, grunge was on the radio. Like it wasn't some kind of secret thing to know who Soundgarden was or like Nirvana or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then like my sister got really into electronic music. So around when I was in like seventh grade or something, yeah, I think seventh grade, like my sister started showing me like bought a, a bunch of like trance records and um and then like house records and then she got really into drum and bass for a while so like that was my first exposure to like like I was like a seventh grader and like walking around with headphones on listening to like DJ Dara and Diesel Boy and stuff which looking back on it now that's kind of wild like rotating cool. between <laughs> yeah yeah I mean did you like did you feel cool no, no, absolutely not. Uh, I felt a lot of things when I was in middle school, but cool was not one of them. Um, what what did you feel? I mean, uh, probably the same types of feelings that most other like weird seventh and eighth graders have felt forever. <laughs> uh, I know that like, like some... So I interview tons. I mean, I've, I've done now like 60 of these interviews, like these oh, long, wow. long form interviews. And, and, you know, I interview like all mediums. So like, you know, the percentage of people I've interviewed that are musicians is probably a little higher than any other medium, just because I know more musicians, but I try to be like pretty balanced. Um, and as I've interviewed people from all sorts of mediums, you know, over the last year, um, sometimes I'll talk to people who like, they'll tell me that in their middle school years, they felt kind of like an outcast, but the way that they talk about it is like, almost kind of like, but I knew I was like cooler. Like I knew I was like onto cool stuff. And I just like, pe my peers just like weren't caught up. And yeah. I mean, like, I they feel mm -hmm. like I'm just, I'm just, I don't know where I belong. I definitely, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I'd say I felt like an outcast. I, cause I didn't feel like I was doing anything, um, like Some weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, this is, this is like the shit I'm into and I'm very open about it. And everybody else thinks I'm not cool or weird for those things. And like, okay, fine. Like, I guess I embrace that. I guess it was a good primer for life. That's why I like 
to ask about it. Like, I know it's like, oh, who cares what you feel like in middle school? But like the, the fact that we, like in our American culture and like Western culture, I think mostly in general, we choose our career paths when we're like 18 means that the stuff that's going on when you're like 13 is like pretty important. Right. Um, and, and I think especially like the kinds of people who make decisions that lead them to an adulthood full of creativity, there's a certain amount of like kind of gutsiness about it that I think is, I don't know, like the, the origins can be all sorts of different things, but I, I like to try to ask about them. So do, so do you think like it's right, is it right that you maybe felt like confident about the stuff you were into, but just like you didn't know a lot of other people that were into it? Yeah, I think that's that's really accurate. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I think kids were a lot meaner um, back in back in our day. No, like, um, yeah. I, I a, think things are I a little a very hard time in middle school. I had a, I had a rough time. I think I think that outlet has kind of changed, though. I will say I am super grateful that social media did not exist while I was in middle school, high school. I mean, I guess MySpace came out in high school. But I wasn't on it. I never had a MySpace. I skipped it. Yeah, you didn't miss much. <laughs> um, I was, I think I, I'm, my experience was really different from yours in the sense that like, I just, I didn't have, I don't know what it was, but I just, I feel like I wasn't exposed to much. Like my parents, my parents liked music, like my parents like dancing. My parents like dance music. Um, and so, you know, I was exposed to like Michael Jackson and Earth, Wind and Fire really early, which I think really informed like my rhythm, you know, like my ability to understand 16th note subdivision. Like, That's awesome. That honestly, that music didn't come for me until like high school or yeah. later. Yeah. So like, I don't. I'm grateful for that stuff. Like, I mean, I was like feeling a 16th note subdivision at a super young age, but like in terms of like kind of art and like art identity, I had like zero awareness that that was even like a thing until I was like 17. Like, you know, people like having music and, and really just art be like, and so I think, I think as I was young, I need, like, I wanted that. Like, I think there was something like in my personality that like was drawn to that kind of thinking. And I just had zero outlet or like input, which I think left me as a young person feeling very like a little bit disenfranchised, like a little lost. So I I think I felt like I don't know what I'm about like I don't know what I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean where uh, where did you grow up in Arizona? Like the Phoenix area, um, Mesa. Okay. Like a, a super 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 conservative suburb of Phoenix. Got it. Yeah. Um, I mean I'm sure there were plenty of kids in my school that were like into cool things. I just like I don't know I missed it. I missed it. I was in choir. That was it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, so I, I like to hear that like 
your story, like you were, you know, maybe like not loving your middle school experience, but did have kind of conviction about like the things that you were drawn to. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was, it was, uh, yeah, minus the social aspects, it was a really cool time for my musical growth in a, in a way that I wasn't aware of was going on. Right. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I think that's important. I think that's important to like put a pin in. Um, like this is what was happening during that time. Um, yeah, your your creative mind is filling up with stuff, and you're developing taste. Yeah, and I think I I really do think a lot of uh, just a lot of the influence of like having an older sibling, just like being totally cool with passing on what she was listening to, and because by middle school she's in, or by the time I'm in middle school. She's in college, so she's, you know, just getting exposed to all this different music, and she just passed all of it on to me. That's so cool. And And it's also, it's cool of her to do that, and it's also cool of you to, like, want to share that with her. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, those were good times. That was, I, like, I've been, I've been having this conversation with a couple of people lately, where it's like, um, you know, when you get excited to show someone something new, like be it like a new record or a new film or something, well, new, new to them. Like I get excited because for me, it's like, it's like I'm sharing a very special experience, not just the music, but the experience of like, what was it like the first time I heard this record that to me, like totally changed my life. Like now you get to experience this for the first time. I will never get to do that again. Yeah. I, I I love that. You know, and I think there's I think there's something really really beautiful about that. One hundred percent. I fully agree. Yeah, yeah. I love that too. Um, okay, so will you talk to me now about like um, just the process of like getting serious about music and drums? Yeah. So that happened very quickly once I started high school. Yeah. Um, so I was in marching band. And, um, you know, uh, marching band, you start rehearsals over the summer to get ready for fall. And the band at my high school was horrible. It was not a good band program. Um, and there were not very many, very, I'm trying to be very careful with my words in case any of them listen to this. Um, there were not a lot of people that were very serious about music in it. And I walked in and was one of already as like an incoming freshman, like a 14 year old incoming freshman, freshman was one of the most proficient drummers in that band program, except for one guy who was a senior when I was a freshman. And this was the best drummer I'd ever heard. Um, And I just remember being totally floored by this guy. And, um, and I remember like after, you know, maybe second week of rehearsals of, of marching band being like, man, like, how did you get so good? Like, where is all this stuff coming from? What did you, what did you work on? And he was like, well, you know, uh, this is my teacher. His teacher was, um, oh my God, Henry Oxel. Do you remember him? No, I don't know him. I'm trying to remember if that's his last name. He was an adjunct drum teacher at UNT. Okay, cool. Um, it's yeah. Not, I mean it sounds like vaguely familiar but sorry, I can't help. 
it's all good. But he was like, yeah, I study with this guy. I listen to a lot of jazz and um, I want to do this professionally. Next year, I'm going to go to North Texas and study with Ed Soph. And for me, this was like my 14 year old brain just kind of exploded because I was like, wait, like one, I don't know anything about jazz, but if it made you this good at drums, I'm immediately interested Two, like you can do this for a living. Like this is a, like, this is a career option. Yeah. Uh, up at that point, I was like, I, I wanted to go to school for like literature. I wanted to be an English teacher. Me too. That's also like, I, I thought about being an, I thought about doing English and I thought about doing law. Those were oh, like wow. <laughs> two things that I, my dad's a lawyer. So I think, got it. I think I probably like, you know, I had that in, in my mind in a way that you wouldn't, if you didn't like know a lawyer. Yeah, no, I was just like, uh, you know, as, as much as a 14 year old can have a concept about like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life or go to school for. I was like, sure. Like I'll be an English teacher. That sounds cool. I like reading. I like, I like books. I think teaching would be fun. But then, you know, I met this guy and he tells me about this school and he tells me about Ed Sof and he tells me about jazz and I'm just floored and I I have like a million questions for him. And he's like, uh, he tells me, you know what, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll bring you a couple of records. Wow. And so we come, we come back the next day and he brought me, he brought me Wayne Shorter, Night Dreamer brought me miles davis complete 1964 concert johnny griffin a blow-in session and this like this bernard purdy record that i don't remember the title of i think he brought me a tower of power record too cool but um the first one i listened to of those was the miles davis record uh because i knew the name but i didn't know anything about this person and so like i remember putting it on in the car after my mom picked me up to listen to on the ride home. And I guess I started with whatever disc is four and more where like the first track is so what, but the half notes like yeah. right there. And, uh, Oh, and there's the introduction where, where the guy says like, and on drums, you know, uh, Tony Williams, young, Mr. Young, Mr. Tony Williams, he's 19 years old, I believe and whatever. Oh and God. so like, so the first track I hear is so what, and I just hear Tony just like, playing the living shit out of the drums and just like stuff that I didn't know people could do on a cymbal. Yeah. And I was just like, this is the greatest thing that I have ever heard. Like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, and like pretty much after that first week, my, my pass path was set and you would not have known this drummer because he, uh, he left North Texas my freshman year. He would have been a senior then. Um, mm-hmm. but his name, his name was D Stribling. He okay. lives in Austin now, I believe. Um, yeah. but go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, he, yeah. Cause him, him and the band that he was in, they moved to New York, uh, in 2006. Cool. Um, and then he moved back a while later, but you might've heard his name around. Like he, I mean, he was very much there. Yeah. Um, relative I time. I don't remember. I'm sure that I did, but but I love that story. Um, I love so many things about it. I, ha- I had a similar experience, like my very first, I've told this story on the podcast a bunch of times, so I'll, like, just, I won't tell it, but my, my very first jazz was Miles Davis too. And, and Which album? Kind of Blue. Beautiful. 
And yeah, I, I, I listened to it alone. Like I, I've told it a million times, but my parents, my whole family went to California without me. So I was just like at home alone and I put it on and just like, I just had an experience similar to what you described of just like, how, why have I never heard anything like this? How can I have more of it? Um, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but like as a teacher, I sometimes I will get like so excited about like playing a certain recording for a a specific student. And um, like, it's almost like, I'll be like, oh, this student is ready for this. You know, and I like think about it like before their lesson and I get all excited. And then like, I'm almost inevitably totally let down by their reaction. Always. Um, I had that happen actually relatively recently and it was it was a little heartbreaking yeah because like I had I have this student uh I have this student he's a good good drummer uh he's a junior in high school so he's getting ready to do like all of his college applications and everything um he goes to the arts magnet school in New York City like really good player and we were talking about Tony Williams who is obviously Obviously, for me, like him and Elvin Jones are the reason that I started doing this. Yeah. And uh, I recommended that he go home and listen to the record Nefertiti. Yeah. Which, like, if you're a drummer, that is like the fucking record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, should, uh, it should, like, do something to you. Yeah, it should. It should elicit some kind of reaction. The first track on it is Nefertiti. And it's basically like eight minutes of Tony Williams soloing over this melody. Yeah. Um, I mean, there obviously there's a lot of other really cool stuff going on, but anyways, so this student comes back the next week and I'm like, so did you, did you listen to Nefertiti? He's like, yeah, I mean, I did. I was like, okay, so what'd you think of it? He's like, it was all right, I guess. And I'm sitting here thinking like, this doesn't seem like the right reaction. Like, so I asked him, I was like, so did anybody solo on Nefertiti? And he's like, yeah, like, uh, who's the horn player in that group? I was like, do you mean Miles Davis or Wayne Short? He's like, yeah, they both solo on it. And I was like, okay, you didn't listen to this, did you? And he was yeah. like, oh, maybe not. And so, I hate it anyways, I ended up, uh, yeah, so this kid was lying to me. It happened so, so frequently. Yeah, the, oh my God, a, kid, a student lying in their lesson about practicing, that never happens. Or again, not even practicing, just like, did you listen, did you think about this? It's crazy. I, I have a hard time getting students to, side, side note, I have a hard time getting students to listen to records now, but that's a whole other- It's cultural, it's other a generational thing. It's, well, because without getting super off on this, because we actually had to pay for music and a lot of those records I had to hunt down and find. And so by the time I actually got many of those, there were records that I was looking for for months, weeks, years. In a couple of cases, there were records that it took me years to find or like buying like Japanese reissues that I was like buying off eBay for 50 bucks and then waiting for two months for them to like ship to the U S. Yeah. So it was like, well, it's very and, different than like, getting on Spotify and just totally. Well, and not only that, like, not only do you have to like put your money and like your kind of effort behind it, but you can't afford that many. So 
once you have one, you listen to it until like it's dead. Like you listen to it until the CD is dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So which you just learn, you just learn things in a different way. But um, but I wanted to ask you that feeling of like being like totally lit up and like turned on by a by a record or or by a, a drummer or a song or whatever. Do you think there's something like do, do you have a name for like what that like trait is? Cause like I I know that like some people just like do not have that reaction about like anything. Right. In any medium, any like it's just not a feeling. I don't yeah, actually I don't know if we have a word for that feeling in English. There should yeah. be one. Or like or like I guess my really my question is like do you have th- do you have any theories about like what type of like combination of personality traits like allows for that type of like excitement or like I really really what I'm trying to ask is you know I, as I try to figure out like what allows us to be creative like what is the makeup of a creative because like we're all so different you know I'm looking for like any sort of commonality or like you know, I, I sometimes I feel like if we could pinpoint like part of what allows it, we could teach it better. And I don't just mean like to our students, but like to p- adults, you know? Um, like, just, do you have any thoughts about like what that is that like? I do. I, I think I think the underlying thing in common that I have seen across the board for any kind of creative artist, whatever their medium is curiosity. And, and the ability to act on that curiosity, not just this fleeting, like, oh, that was cool. I don't know what it was, but sure, whatever, that was fine. Like that just intense desire to be like, what the fuck was that? I am floored. That was incredible. I want to know, I want to know what that thing mm-hmm. is. How do I do, how do I do that? How do I recreate that? Whatever it is, be it the, you know, the emotional feeling, the emotional impact, like, the technical facility or like, I mean, I'm, I've, I've all the, I guess those aren't totally musical specific terms, but just that, that like, that kind of just punch in the gut feeling that just catches you off guard and mm-hmm. your ability to register it and want to know everything about that. And then when you figure it out to look for the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I've talked about curiosity a lot in this podcast, but I think you just kind of made me think about it in a different way. And and I, I really think this is this is part of the reason why I'm so interested in these topics because <clears throat> I think I think you're, like it's a chicken or the egg thing for me a little bit sometimes because I think like you have to have creativity to like have curiosity too. Like if it, you know I I feel like I was raised by like it, like not just my immediate family, but like just kind of in the culture I was raised in, like just very kind of closed minded, like a non, not creative thinking group. Um, and I feel it's so tied to curiosity. Like, it's almost like you can't be curious about something if it doesn't occur to you to think that there may be other possibilities. Right. I guess the way I was describing that was like, just like the follow through on it. But yeah, it takes, it takes a certain level of Yeah, it does. It takes a certain level of creativity to like even have a question, even understand how to follow up on that. 
Yeah. And that's why I get like obsessed with this topic. Cause I just wonder like, where does it begin? Like if we can't figure out where it begins, like how can we try to like go in and fix that thing, <laughs> you know, so that like we can get better at like being more curious or like, you know, just having a little bit more like divergent thinking about like people, about ideas, about like, you know, whatever. Um, I, I agree. I also, to an extent though, I do wonder if like natural creativity or curiosity is more of a a personality trait that like maybe can't be learned. I don't, I, I, I don't know. Um, I think a lot of my guests, like a lot of the conversations I have land in this same sort of a place. Like, I think we all kind of agree that like creativity is a muscle, like creativity is something that you have to work on. Like, you know, the idea that someone is naturally creative, like maybe some more than others. Like, I think a a lot of the people that I've talked to we come to the conclusion that like it's curiosity or it's like resilience or it's some kind of stubborn determination that is actually the thing. Yeah. I think, I think that's kind of where I land too. Cause it feels shitty to say like, you're either a creative person or you're not like, cause it doesn't, I know so many exceptions to either side of that, but I do think there are a lot of people that just aren't curious. And I don't necessarily think that's a, a, a bad thing or a good thing but i do i do think there is a thing that a lot of people have that makes them ask like why or how uh mm-hmm. in other places where some people might just be like okay cool that's what it is yeah oh that's such like a sad i feel like it's such a depressing thought <laughs> like like I, I, I guess i don't i don't know if i view it as depressing like why I don't know if the world would work if everybody was just uh, like constantly trying to find like uh, what's what how do I explain this? I don't know. You need you need people that are more like grounded and are just like no, it's like this. Like you got to do this thing. Uh, <laughs> I maybe like I have an I have an overabundance of those people in my life, which is maybe why. I don't feel quite that way. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a balance, and but at the same <laughs> yeah. time, you need the people on the other end of the spectrum to say like, why? Why do we have to do it that way? Maybe it could be better this way. Maybe that's it's better really, for everyone if we do it this way. That's a really beautiful way to about that. I I like it. I mean, um, I obviously fall into the the camp of like, camp why? Of why? Why does it have to be this way? Like, can yeah. it be better? Or like, is there a different way of doing this that elicits the same? response or whatever the end result may be yeah but i don't know i think i'm trying to be like not biased on this because obviously in my in my utopian world that i want like everybody is just super creative and like wants to you know take the path less traveled but i think i think there is a certain balancing act that um, you're probably maybe is is beneficial i don't know yeah who knows i don't know um i wanted to just quickly ask you um what what did you love about literature that's a good question i started reading stephen king when i was really young um too scary i think (laughs) i think the first stephen king book i read was when i was like 
think maybe third grade. Huh. Um, my mom, both my parents read a lot. And so there were always a lot of books around. And um, my sister read a lot. So like there, there was that kind of just culture of like reading in my house. And uh, I think, I think kind of the real kicker for me was around like um, one, I always liked learning things. So as soon as I found out that I could like buy books on topics that I was interested in, I was like, Oh, this is great. But I also really loved stories. And I think there was this one time that I got grounded in third grade. I don't remember what I did, but my parents were like, okay, like, no TV, no video games, whatever. And I was like, fine. Yeah. And I just sat down and read a ton of books. And like, uh, I, used to, I used to get grounded for reading. Y- yeah, my my parents didn't do that. I don't that. I'm trying to think. I never got grounded from reading. Like the the way I got grounded, especially when I was in high school, started to look a lot different, and it stopped being as effective because it was like okay, you, you're, you got a C plus on your report card or whatever, like no TV, no video games, no computer. Oh shit. You mean I can just sit around and practice drums all day? Like, great. No distractions. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. My, my parents grounded me from like the things that I truly loved. Um, (laughs) I don't think, I don't think my parents understood that, that like, uh, that it wasn't like incentivizing me. I mean, I don't think it was good parenting. Just, if I'm if I'm not being clear. <laughs> oh, on your on your on your parents' part? Yeah. I think grounding your kids from like learning is there's no good. Yeah, that's, that doesn't seem like the best that, approach. It's a bad choice. It's yeah. <laughs> I'm glad your parents didn't ground you from reading and practicing drums. Yeah, that would have that would have uh that would have not ended well. That would have been a serious, that would have escalated from me accepting my fate to like a serious pushback. Oh, I mean, I think like I'm, I'm still in the serious pushback of that, of that kind of punishment. (laughs) Like I got a master's degree in jazz studies, you know? Right. (laughs) Like my, my rebellion is just like obscure arts academia. There you go. That's, that's (laughs) one way to do it. Okay, so let's let's like skip ahead a little bit. Can you take me to like, I mean, okay, I was I usually ask people like, how did you decide like what to major in? But like, I already know the answer to this question for you. Um, you decided like you more or less decided like when you had that conversation with that drummer, right? Yeah, that was that was it. So, um, it, so is there anything else you want to say about like, like actually making the decision? Like, did you have pushback? I mean, to study. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell, I would love to know about that. Um, I mean, at, at first, my parents were not supportive. Um, they they warmed up by like, I think my by my junior year they were pretty cool with it. But freshman and sophomore year, it was like we didn't talk a lot about it at home because uh, it was it was a sensitive topic. But I got. You know, my freshman year, I kind of jumped around from teacher to teacher. My sophomore year, it was either the summer between my freshman and sophomore year or the summer between my sophomore and junior year. I went to a jazz camp for the first time. I think it was uh, it was the, oh, did you ever, uh, the Collin County Community College? Yeah. 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 They had a jazz camp. and um, Quad C. Quad C, right. Oh, my God. Um uh, 
Why do I know that? that? There's no reason why I should know that. Did you teach there at all or like? Um, you know, I know that because I was an Eagle ambassador. I was like a tour guide. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and that would so make sense. I'm sure like we did outreach stuff there. Yeah, it was pretty, because if I, if I remember correctly and like, sorry, Texas people, if I got this totally wrong, I haven't lived there in a while. But uh, Quad C was originally like, it was a community college. It was a two-year program. And then they'd send you like one of the big feeder schools that they went to was North Texas. At that Collin County jazz camp that summer, I met Mike Drake. He was the drum set teacher there. And uh, at the end of the camp, I was like, hey, do you teach privately? And he said, yes. And then I started studying with him until I went to North Texas. Did you know Mike? I think so. I mean, it sounds like when you said the name, I was like, oh, I know Mike. And then I like can't actually think of a person. Uh, he was the well, main. Forgot, but it's also possible I never knew him. He was, uh, he was one of the adjunct drum set teachers at North Texas. Okay. So it was him and Henry. Uh, Mike, Mike did a lot of stuff with, um, with Rosanna. Uh, okay. Yeah, South, South African accent. Yeah, I don't know. I I can't like place a specific face or anything, but it sounds very familiar. But I forgot oh, so many people from um you know, a couple of years after I graduated, my like Facebook, I got like locked out of my Facebook account, and I think like in that time, I like stopped seeing like all those people that like I had kind of like slowly friended over the years. And then now sometimes Facebook will be like, do you know this person? And I'll be like, oh. Right. So it's possible, like, just not from having not seen, like, people's names and faces regularly in my feed. I, they, like, are gone from my brain. Sure. It doesn't matter. So you were taking um, from Mike Drake. Yeah, so that was cool because he, you know, he got me ready to go to North Texas and to study with Ed. Okay, cool. And, and your parents, like, came around. Yeah, they came around, and I was also I was involved in um in a band program outside of school that was run by some older North Texas people. Like the main guy that ran it was a drummer that played in the One O'clock in the early '80s, and uh, one of the saxophone players that ran it uh, also played in the One O'clock in the early '90s. And uh, he was like Ari Honig played on his master's recital. Actually, you would know this guy, you um Bruce Bonestangle. Do you remember him? Yeah. Yeah, so Bruce didn't finish his master's the first time, but he um, got to the very end. I don't know the total story, but Ari Honig played on his first master's recital in the 90s. And cool. so I, I met Bruce maybe when I was like 14 or 15. Oh. And uh, yeah, so he introduced me to, to Ari Honig's music. And then when Bruce came back to North Texas uh, much later, um, you know, I ended up getting to play with him a lot and playing on his master's recital the second time. and everything kind of came full circle, but yeah, so I was, since my band program at school was so terrible, I was finding a lot of playing opportunities outside. And, yeah. And, uh, and you're, are you saying that because like you felt like you'd seen people like having this profession and like, I had asked if your parents came around. Was that- Oh, I mean, it was just kind of like tie in with everything. Cause it wasn't just like private lessons with Mike. It was, um, Right. You had like a lot of stuff going on and okay. Got it. Yeah. But no, my parents came around, I think by like my junior year, they were pretty cool with it because it was clear that I was just 
you know, I was very serious. I was taking lessons. I was doing this outside of school program. I was starting to play some gigs, you know, it was like, and I spent all my time practicing. Like I, I wasn't, wasn't really doing anything else for starting around my sophomore year, but really my last two years of high school, I didn't, I didn't do much besides practice. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't ever a time that you like at, like after that initial conversation, there wasn't a time that you like considered doing something else. No, no. Cool. Um, wow. I was, I was pretty, pretty tunnel visioned after I realized that that was a thing that I could do. Yeah. I just didn't even know it was an option before. So, um, about your, your six years at North Texas, six, yeah. Five, five, yeah. five. Right. You left one year before me and I got there one year after you and we both did five years offset by one. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know that I have like specific questions just right off the bat, but like, you know, again, like the things that I'm interested in for this, the, you know, for this podcast are like, how do we develop creativity and maintain it? How do we develop and maintain like artistry, which I think are not necessarily the same thing. And then, you know, how do we develop and maintain like resilience? So um, what do you want to talk about, like about your college years? And we can also talk about like mental health, which is also so important, especially during like that age. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I had a really good time in North Texas for the first couple of years. And then, um, you know, I was in a really bad car wreck my uh, senior year, my first senior year, like 2009 in the fall. I forgot. I had to drop, huh? I like forgot that. I mean, now that you're saying that, I like totally remember that happening, but like I had forgotten that. Yeah. And so I, yeah, that was, I think September 5th of 2009. And, uh, I had to drop out of school for that semester and I moved back in with my parents. And, um, it was around that time that I started for the first time in a long time, really seriously exploring music that wasn't necessarily like jazz. Like it was around that time that I got really into Brazilian music and I got really into North and South Indian music. I started going back and revisiting a lot of like the punk and indie rock that I was into and, and, uh, in high school. And then I started kind of becoming more aware of like the avant-garde world. And, um, you know, a lot of that stuff started really kind of seeping into what I wanted to do musically. And when I, when I went back to North Texas, so I guess spring of 2010, um, to me, I started to feel like that maybe, maybe around that point, I had kind of gotten what I what I wanted from the school. Yeah, and they uh, they made it pretty clear that they weren't going to put me in the one o'clock, which is, I think, why I stayed as long as I did. Yeah, and for and, uh, the one o'clock band is um, it's like oh, right. many many times Grammy nominated. Um, like it's just an incredible big band. Um, that that happens to be a, a student band at North Texas, but it's it's prof- it's a professional band. <laughs> um, yeah, the, and the prestige. I mean, and I, you know, especially me growing up in Dallas and being aware of that band, you know, pretty much since I was a freshman in high school and first 
even became aware about North Texas's music program, like I had those records and that, I think at the time it meant a lot to me and I really wanted to be in that band. And uh, for reasons I won't go into, they they made it very clear that I was not going to be in that band. Did, was it like, you just weren't like the right fit? Is it, was that like what you understood? Um, again, without going too far into it, I'll say that um, I think if Neil would have still been directing the program, I would have been in there. But okay. when That's Steve Weiss took over the band, um, I think, yeah, I, I think there's whatever. Again, don't want to go super deep into it. But. Sure. Did you feel like that was like... Um like representative of like a, a a turning point um in terms of like how you you felt about your artistry like there in general i mean yes and no like i was definitely always kind of a, a left of center player if we're talking about like um you know like i could i could do the straight ahead stuff really well but i was always more drawn to things that were you know, a little more, more weird. Like I liked a lot of, you know, uh, like the kind of more experimental stuff that Tony Williams did. And I liked, you know, the really late John Coltrane stuff. And then around the same time I became aware of Albert Eiler and I was starting to check out, you know, great drummer, Sonny Murray. And I became aware of the art ensemble of Chicago and, um, you know, as also I was becoming really interested in what was happening in New York. Uh, like I was really spending a lot of time checking out drummers like Dan Weiss and Jim Black and John Hollenbeck and yeah. uh, towards the very end, Tyshawn Sori. Yeah. And just the kind of playing aesthetic that I was interested in or beginning to become really interested in. There weren't really a lot of outlets for me uh, at North Texas for that. Yeah. That's maybe what I was trying to ask. Like, you know, if you kind of came to a, a realization that you just, you you were ready for like a new thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why I stuck around as long as I did, honestly. Um, I think it's just because I didn't really have a full kind of game plan set, but I remember being incredibly unhappy during that period and not totally being aware of it. Um, well, that's, I've talked about that also with a lot of my guests it's so tricky and and again it's why I why I get so curious about these things or a reason why I get curious about it um you know like I said before we we're expected in our in our culture to kind of make big life decisions when we're 18 and we're figuring out so many things about just like our personalities um, and it, it can be like very confusing. And then when you're also in a creative, you know, endeavor and trying to be like unique, you know, trying to be creative, trying to kind of like make your own new things, it can be very disorienting to try to figure out like which things you're supposed to be like really independent about and which things you're supposed to be like learning. It's just, it's hard. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like, my second senior year at North Texas was was a wash. I think like my last semester, I don't think I was even in a lab band. Like I, I did not want to be there. Everybody knew it. I was just kind of going through the motions. And I remember um, I had 
a group that we learned all of uh, all of this really crazy music by this guitarist named Miles Okazaki. And he was someone that I had met several times and had kind of become friends with through my my trips back and forth to New York. Like I would come up here and sublet a lot of summers and take mm -hmm. lessons with either Ari Honig or Dan Wise. When were you doing, you were doing that like during school? Yeah, I would, I would come up here during the summers and just hang out for a couple of months and study with people. How did you like get the idea to do that? Or like, were other people doing that? Um, not really. Yeah. I, I did the first time I did it was, was between my, sophomore and junior year and I don't even remember how I got the idea I think at that time at that time I was like I was super obsessed with Ari Honig yeah. and he was a North Texas alumni he studied with Ed Sof and I can't remember if I got his email address through Ed or if he like came down to school for a clinic or something but I somehow got in touch with him and you know we were just talking about private lessons and I think it I mean, this has been so long ago, I'm really trying to remember it, but I think at some point I, I floated the idea of like, either I floated it or he said, you know, if you want to come sublet up here, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to teach you or whatever. And so I just kind of started looking on, uh, I want to say at that point it was Craigslist and I found a sublet for a couple of months that I could afford that was close to where Ari Honig lived. And I, I remember it being like a pretty quick process and I was just like, like after a week, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go live in Brooklyn for a couple of months and this summer and awesome. study with Ari Honig. I mean, that's like, that's creative, first of all. That's like creative problem solving, creative, like divergent thinking. Um, and also like ballsy. Um, it was a little terrifying. Yeah. Um, like how, how? Tell me more. <laughs> I mean, like we can just, we can talk more about New York when you like move there officially, but like. I mean, yeah, that seems huge. I mean, I was young. I would have, uh, so it was over the summer. My birthday's in the summer. And I think when I got here for that trip, I was 19 and I turned 20 while I was here. So I was, I was super young. Crazy. And I, uh, you know, I kind of packed up and was like, I'm going to go live in this place. that's almost 2000 miles away from everything I know Yeah. Uh, by myself. I don't know anybody there except for, I guess at that point I knew Ari but yeah. like North Texas people that I knew hadn't really started moving there yet. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. I remember I got a practice space. I practiced a lot. Like I think I was pulling like seven to nine hour days, basically that whole summer. But just, that was why I was there. You know, I was right. taking one or two lessons a week with Ari uh, and then I'd go shed all day and then I'd go out and hear him at night. And How did you like afford that? Were you working too? trying to remember was i mean i'm sure if i was 19 i'm sure my parents helped me out helping you that's that's awesome that's great um, um yeah i mean i moved to tech when i moved to texas like i i didn't know anybody there um but it was texas you know he was dent <laughs> like it was it was a small little town like you know the, the, the it was it was familiar in a lot of ways just like culturally like it you know it was fairly suburban like I can't imagine, I can't, I can't imagine moving to New York as a nineteen-year-old. Like I can't imagine I mean, I guess, moving to New York now. From being uh, like I went there on vacation, like maybe five years ago now, and like I felt stressed out just being there. Like I just, I it's a scary place to me. <laughs> 
it can it can be that way i don't know for me um you know i think i think one i wasn't moving there at the time i was i knew i was like i'm up here for two months or something for a very specific goal like it's very task oriented um and i don't know for me like yeah there was a lot of overwhelming like holy shit like i'm in new york city like this is this functions so different than what i'm used to but i will say that for me like growing up in dallas texas i um i never really felt like i belonged there like i never really felt like i got the yeah. just the vibe of that city or the vibe of texas in general mm. and like i also very much feel like i'm allowed to say these things because i lived there for 23 years but you're allowed to say them even if you uh, you're allowed to um, what you feel texas was not a good place for me i didn't i didn't gel with the way of life there yeah. and i do remember like only even after being in new york for like a week it was the first time that I really felt like I, I belonged somewhere. Like, it, like shit just made sense to me. Like, the speed wow. of life, the way social interactions worked, just, like, I got it. It was way more direct. It was way more upfront. It was way mm-hmm. more in your face. Like, if someone was unhappy with you or didn't like you, they just told you. There was none of this, like, kind of passive-aggressive Southern hospitality bullshit. Yeah. Like, it just it, it way more gelled with kind of how I liked to navigate the world. That's cool. So, I mean, so early you had, like, I just think that's great. You had like, you had like practice living in New York. I did. Yeah. I had a lot of practice living here before I moved here. Yeah. And I have to imagine that also affected your identity a little bit. Like if you weren't totally fitting in at North Texas, you maybe could kind of, you'd already seen yourself in another place. Um, I mean, I have to imagine that gave you like a little bit of confidence in some. Yeah. And I mean, like, and so I, I kept going back um, to to New York on the summer, during the summers. And, you know, I made some friends and like I got to study with some amazing musicians and I developed a friendship with that guitarist named Miles Okazaki. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, my my last semester in North Texas, so this would be spring of 2011, um, I'd been playing with a group that we learned all of his music and this stuff was like crazy hard. It was, it was the hardest music I'd ever played. And we'd been rehearsing it for like eight months or something just to even be able to like play it at a baseline level. And I remember emailing miles and just being like, Hey man, if I, I've got this group, we've been playing your music for a while now. If I booked a tour and paid for your plane ticket, would you come down and tour with us? Like it'll, it'll, you know, it, we, we won't be advertising it like it's your group or whatever, but we'll just say like, you know, we're playing your music and you'll be part of the band. Yeah. And he was super cool with it. So he came down. I set up this tour. Um, how did you do we that? Rehearsed. Or like, how did you, how did you get the, like the confidence to like, just do, to set up, just set up tour? I think I just kind of did it on a whim. I think it was just like, more of like, a, I wonder, first, I wonder if Miles will agree to this. And then he did. And then I was just like, well, shit, he said yes. Now I have to do it. <laughs> do you feel like, it, is that a pattern for you to like, like, I was just listening to something like earlier today, I think, or maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. Time is weird in quarantine. Um, yeah, I feel that. Of like, well, like, the it's like a little analogy of like, 
um, a guy like wants to jump over a fence and is like, it's too high. I can't get over it. And then like throws his hat over and is like, well, now I have to get over it because my hat's over there. I, th- I think I have operated that way uh, through a lot of my life. I don't think it's necessarily conscience, uh, conscious, but I think that is. You tend to dive in. I tend to, I tend to dive into things um, for better or worse. It's worked out really well sometimes and it's worked out horribly other times. I but, mean, um, that risk-taking thing is like, it's a thing, you know, like that's when I, when I said before that, you know, I'll talk with my guests about like, like what the thing is. Like, I feel like it's a really regular conversation that I'm having on this podcast. Is it curiosity? Is it resilience? Is it like determination? And like, sometimes like, you know, we kind of agree that it's like, it's a risk, it's a risk kind of a thing. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, like, thing, but and that's, I mean, that pretty, that really coincides with my personality and my musicality. Like I've always, and the, and the kinds of music that I've always been drawn to. Yeah. Like I've always been like a, a risky player and in certain cases, an overly risky player. I've never really been like, I was never the drummer that you called if you wanted things to just be safe and status quo. Um, was there ever a time that you felt like you weren't sure if that was the right thing to do? Like, did you ever feel like unsure about being like the guy that plays risky stuff? I don't think so. It just, you just, you, you always, um, it seems like you, like a common kind of thread in your story is like, you've just had like integrity about like the stuff you're interested in and the stuff you're doing. I think for me, like semi early on, basically like after I kind of got like my nuts and bolts together and was like, like I can play this instrument. I know a lot of tunes. Like I can play this, this language. Like I know my history and whatever. I think after a certain point, it was kind of like, if, if you don't, you know how I play, if you don't want me on the gig or you want a drummer to do something else, like call someone that'll do that. Yeah. And, um, and, and again, like that, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, that, you know, that, I kind of shot myself in the foot in a lot of ways because I, um, you know, I didn't get, I didn't do a ton of cover band stuff when I was in Denton, um, which I would have learned a lot doing that. Uh, I did some of that when I was in New York or since I've been in New York, but I also at the same time, like I never really, I, I never really wanted to do that. It's so, it's so, um, it just is what it is, you know? Like, I, I think about this kind of stuff too, like, you know, the pros and cons of like, these decisions that we make um, as artists, I find them so interesting, but but yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I tend to like have kind of a radical acceptance approach about this kind of stuff now. Like, you know, you you make the decisions that you're capable of making and then later maybe you reflect and think like, maybe I could have learned a different lesson and maybe next time this type of decision comes around, I'll think about it differently. Or like maybe the lesson that I learned was that like, this is, I take this like not, not uh, always traveled path. Which is cool. I think for, I think, yeah. I mean, for me, it was just like, um, I think what I wanted out of, out of school and like music in general, like, yeah, I wanted to be good at my instrument. I wanted to be like a pretty good drummer, but I didn't want to be like, my takeaway was not like, I want to be the jobbing drummer that's doing like 
the piano trio quiet background restaurant gig and then goes and does like a musical or plays for you know the cover band gigs on the weekend and then has their church gig on sunday not that there's anything wrong with any of that and i've done all of that stuff and it's really fun um but especially after i moved to new york and and i did that for a couple of years when i moved to new york it just hit a point where it's like why did i move 2000 miles to do the same shit that I could have done back in Dallas for less money when my rent is like 10 times more expensive. Yeah. Um, so did you move to New York? Um, like kind of after that tour? Well, so that tour I realized, um, one, just like getting out of North Texas and like hanging out with miles and, and touring, I realized like, Oh, wow. I feel a lot better like physically, mentally, and emotionally when I'm not at North Texas. Yeah. So that kind of started that. And then, um, Oh, I remember this. I had just gotten back from a different tour right before that with, um, with a guitarist who also went to North Texas before, um, her name was Lily Mays. Uh, I did like a two week tour with her and, and kind of like this, uh, kind of like weird folk country band. But uh, that was great. So I did like, I basically did like three weeks of tours with people that were living in New York. Yeah. That whole band, the whole band with Lily was, um, was New York people. And then doing a tour with one of my heroes uh, mm-hmm. from New York. I just, I, it just kind of all clicked at once. Like, oh shit, I really am miserable here. And like, yeah. it seems like everything in my life is kind of telling me it's, it's time. And I remember getting back from that tour with Miles and emailing Ed Sof. And just being like, hey, Ed, um, can I come to your office? I need to talk to you about something. And I'll never forget this. So I go, we arrange a time to meet. I go into Ed's office. You know, I sit down at the drum set. He's kind of sitting there. And I'm just like, hey, Ed, like, you know, I've been on tour for the last couple of weeks. And, I, and I'm starting to really realize how unhappy I am here. And I think I'm going to drop out and move to New York. And so Ed's like quiet for a couple of seconds. And he just kind of looks at me and he's like, Colin? you know how long I've been waiting for you to say that? And I was like, oh shit. Okay, cool. I'm in the clear. And uh, it was pretty cool. I Um, love that story. Wow. And Ed and I are still in touch, but yeah, he gave me my blessing. And that was in like, I want to say like April or May of 2011. And I was here on August 1st of that year. Wow. That's awesome. What a cool guy. Well, I mean, that's a good teacher to just like see like who you are and what you need and like, I don't oh, know, he, reflect, reflect that back at you. He he knew and I, I was going through a lot of stuff and he was, I mean, that was very wise. He knew, I mean, he knew me, he was my teacher for five years, you know, and we had a good relationship. He knew I was struggling and that I was really unhappy and um, that, you know, my path was just steadily pointing more and more in that direction. Yeah. And I think he was just, Ed was never the kind of teacher that would give you the answers. He wanted you to find the answers on, on your own. And he would put you in situations where you would have to ask yourself the questions. But he'd never say directly, like, this is the thing you need to do. He just, he, he wasn't that kind of teacher. He wanted you to, obviously, he wanted you to succeed, but he wanted you to figure out how to do it on your own. Yeah, I love that. Um, I just have one more question about your North Texas time, which is just, like, uh, what was, like, I mean, what what was either the most important lesson you learned or just an important lesson you learned? It could be like something you learned that you still use or like something you learned that you like don't want to, you know, it could be either kind of thing. 
I mean, I, uh, that's tricky. Uh, maybe I'll say like one positive and one like maybe takeaway. Yeah, great. Um, I think positive is I really, I mean, like I've always had a pretty strong work, work ethic, but um, like, as you know, the environment at that school, especially when we were there, I think it's calmed down a bit now, was pretty cutthroat and pretty aggressive. Yeah. And um, I learned that I could, yeah, it was. Scary. Uh, <laughs> Um, I learned that I could do well in those situations and that if I worked really hard, I could get through that. Um, that's the positive side of that. The negative side of that was, I also realized I didn't really like that environment and that it was, um, not really conducive to a lot of like mature real world kind of growth. I think. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of other people from our class that were at North Texas around the same time. And like, I think a lot of us have had to struggle with, um, and it's, it's no one specifically at North Texas's fault, I think, but I think it was just the atmosphere that was cultivated during the time that we were there. That was just fucking ruthless. And I think a lot of us have had to, um, kind of unlearn a lot of those really bad social habits that we kind of picked up along the way. I know I had to, yeah. Really, really check myself when I moved up here. And it took years to kind of undo um just some of the social habits that I had I had developed there. Yeah, I totally agree. Um yeah, I was just talking to, I mean, so I'm doing like a little North Texas series. So like I'm just I'm doing four episodes of like people that I went to school with just while we're in quarantine. While I figure like if I'm gonna interview people on Zoom, I'd rather interview people that I already kind of know. <laughs> Sure, sure. I find this to be like harder than interviewing people in person. Um, but yeah, I um, I was talking with uh, Catherine Lashy last week and uh, we were just talking about how like some people really thrive in that environment. And for the people who didn't, it was hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I feel the same as you. Like, it was just like maybe the hardest thing I've, like it was hard um, and it kicked my butt and it like, taught me how to be tough in like some really specific ways um that you know that I totally don't regret like I feel like those are those are hard lessons to come by um and and I I'm glad that I learned them um but yeah I think like it took me at least four years um when I moved here to realize that like not everywhere is like that and to realize that like there are different things going on and like there's yeah. other like totally toxic bullshit going on here in the jazz community. Um, in my experience, that is totally a totally different set of rules. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like I've, I've spent a couple of years like um, relearning artistry, relearning a certain kind of creativity. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I picked up so many bad habits being there just because it was encouraged in the environment, like the amount of like shit talking and clickiness and like backhanded comments to people when they do something dumb in rehearsal, like all that kind of, it's so funny because it was so normalized when we were there. And like, at this point, I just have, I have like so little patience with all of that stuff. And this is coming from someone like I participated in that. I bought into it. And I, I said a lot of things that I, um, I really regret and were really not cool. And I treated a lot of people in really shitty ways. Um, 
I don't remember you like that at all. Um, and actually, well, that's, that's good. <laughs> I actually also, I don't, I don't, I didn't really have that experience there. I think my experience was just that I didn't ever feel like I belonged and I didn't ever really feel good enough. Um, but I don't, I don't remember participating in shit talking. It's possible that I did, but I, I don't, I, I think I mostly just felt sort of like, I think I probably just wasn't in, I wasn't enough in the in-group to be doing any shit talking. It was, uh, so, uh, yeah, it was yeah. you didn't miss much. You missed, count yourself lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, I, yeah, I have, uh, I've done a lot of personal work and the, God, like almost 10 years since I've been gone to like, crazy. Kind of, it's been so long. Um, okay. So yeah, I like that. I like that you said that you like, you, you, uh, what was the thing that you said you liked, like just learning how to thrive in like an, in that kind of, um, really tough environment or, or learning how to like, just do it. Um, yeah, I mean like I, and I, I, I did well in that, but like I said, there were a lot of negative things that go in along with that, that, um, I'm not super proud of. Sure. But you know, I'll say, I also do think that it's, um, it's, it's again, it's like that creative thinking and creative reframing to be able to like see the both sides of that edge. Um, so that's, I think that's, I don't know. It's, I think, I think it's also like an important creative lesson to like be able to look back at your life and like, you know, kind of see a duality in things. So sure. No, definitely. I think, you know, um, okay, so you moved to New York. Sorry, go ahead. What were you saying? Oh, no, no, no. Um, so I want, I, okay, my podcast is called Artifice. Um, and I named it that because I think it's a cool word that has art in the beginning of it, but also because <laughs> I think that artists um, of all kinds are kind of, can be misunderstood. And there's so much about what we do that kind of is, is, um, you know, whether or not it's intentional, it's like illusion making, you know, like, like, even if we try to be very transparent about what we're doing, there is so much complexity in it sometimes that it, that it gets misunderstood or misinterpreted. Um, so I'm interested in the ways that like art and artists are misunderstood. I'm interested in the kind of private ways that we deal with different things. Um, you know, I think sometimes like we all show up and do like more or less the same job depending on kind of your medium, but like the way that you get there and the way that you do it might be totally different. So I'm, I'm interested in all that kind, kind of stuff. But one thing that I, that I thought maybe we could start with as we're entering this kind of like the last, my favorite part of the podcast, um, so you now, or at least in your record, is Simulacra your most recent record? Yes. Yep. Um, labels are tricky, but like, would you call it free jazz? I maybe, probably, probably not, because I mean, like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really. The deeper I go into that music, the less I kind of know what free jazz means. Sure. I, I feel like the like the label that like. I've kind of uh, applied to it that I've seen a lot of other people use is either like creative music or avant jazz. Okay. Um, so this, 
the thing that I kind of wanted to ask is um, just, and just to start, like I, I kind of want, you know, I always feel like people know what's interesting about their lives usually and about their process. So like, I like to try to keep it open, especially at the end of the podcast. Um, but, um, but, you know, jazz is already kind of niche and then you're working specifically on music that is like m extremely misunderstood. Um, and so I think I just want to ask you like, what do you want people to know about it? Yeah, maybe let's just start there. Like, what, what do you what what would you want people to like understand about the music you love? Well, I mean, kind of back up just one second. Like, I um, I when I moved to New York, like for a couple of years, I was really trying to do the like straight ahead modern jazz drummer thing, and I really, I really realized that I was unhappy doing it. I was unhappy doing it at North Texas and I was just as unhappy trying to do it in New York. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of people that are, you know, so much better at that than I am that really love to play that music and great, good, good for them. They should do it. Yeah. Um, I also found a lot of the same kind of like social issues. Um, in New York's straight ahead scene that I was gradually becoming turned off at, at North Texas regarding like clickiness or just kind of like machismo, egotistical, you know, just shit talking kind of it's, attitudes. It's a lack of creativity. Like that's what that stuff feels like to me. Like such a lack of like, well, what do, what is that person good at? Or like, maybe that person is making this choice because of like some really great reason or, yeah. I also I just, I feel like that type of clicky stuff is like just oppressive in a way that is a bummer. Yeah, uh, I agree. And it's obviously like, there are tons of musicians in that and that scene that I love and I'm friends with. And this is not, this is not broad spectrum across the scene. Just but that was experience. my personal experience with trying to get involved in that scene. And at the same time, I also found myself not really listening to a lot of that music. I was getting into much more avant-garde stuff. I was getting, I was kind of following around Taishan Sori. Mm. I was listening to a lot of contemporary classical music. I was listening to a lot of like 60s free jazz. And I started really... Um, becoming interested in the music of Anthony Braxton and the AACM as a, as a whole cool. kind of musical force. And uh, I kind of had to have like a, a career change. It was actually when I decided to go back to school. Okay. Um, so I went back to school, finished an undergrad in jazz, did a master's not in jazz. What's your master's uh, in? Well, on paper, it's like an MA in music performance, which is weird because that's not really a degree that exists. It would be I like an MM. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but basically, like, I basically I have a theory master's degree. Cool. Um, I have a, I studied 20th century classical theory and was like taking doctoral classes at the same time, um, planning to do a doctorate in music theory, but vowed out of that because I very quickly remembered that I hated academia yeah. but um I did that because I was listening to all this other music and I I don't come from a composition background at all um and about the time I was looking at grad school I really wanted to go to grad school for composition but I was a very very green composer 
didn't have a portfolio. So my idea was like, well, I'm like, I'm pretty decent at music theory. And here's this program that lets me, you know, I can still play my instrument. I'll still play in an ensemble that'll be all original music. Uh, and it'll be directed by a musician that I deeply respect. I can take private lessons still. And then all of my coursework will just be like 20th century theory and analysis. Awesome. And I can use that to compose. So that was all of these things kind of, um, kind of put me on the path to, to where I ended up. Um, but as far as like that music being misunderstood, um, I agree with you. It is. Um, yeah. I but mean, especially just by like the public, you know, like I think, I think it's, I think it can be misunderstood by musicians, but. I think it, I think it is grossly misunderstood by both the public and a lot of musicians. Yeah. Um, the thing for me was it, it seemed like a very natural progression for me. You know, I was into like these, these weird avant-garde Tony Williams records. And I was into late John Coltrane. I was super into Ornette and Don Cherry. And then Albert Eiler kind of opened up a whole world for me. And it was just like each step forward, I was kind of just becoming aware, more aware of these different kind of musical worlds that, yeah. very much have their own lineage and history and tradition and um that that did coincide with kind of the the more straight ahead jazz world that I was familiar with but also very much were kind of a a bracket off from that um mm -hmm. and i think for me like when people you know i have this conversation every once in a while they're like what should i be listening for like i don't understand it what what is this music and i'm like you know, it's the same thing with jazz. Like if you, if you listen to it and you feel something and you like it, great. If you want to understand it, I can teach you how to understand it. But if you're, if you're looking to this as like, I need to understand it first before I can like it. I don't really know how to, I don't know how to help you. Yeah. Like I got into that music because I just generally enjoyed the oral aesthetic of it. Yeah. And I liked that. Um, it, I think the word free jazz in a lot of cases is a, is a misnomer unless you're playing totally free improvised music, which I do a lot of and has become one of my main outlets. Yeah. So it's something I love doing, but like, um, you know, like this, this album that I just uh, put out in November, I mean, two of those pieces are over 18 minutes long yeah. and like incredibly through composed. Wow. So it feels kind of weird to call it, um, to call it free jazz for me but at the same time i feel you know it's it's weird to listen to um i don't know there's a whole debate about well, the word free jazz do you want to talk about it i mean uh, this uh, i mean like <laughs> we we can but it's not you know i did i did that in grad school and it's okay. like it's <laughs> i want to kind of give people like the you know an opportunity to just talk about whatever you're like psyched about but okay so i i, I kind of i want to ask you more about like I want to ask you more about like how you create, like how you make things, but, um, but I, but I'd love to just hear you talk about like what avant-garde music like does for you. Like, why do you like it? Like what, what is it about like to you? I mean, for me, it's just an extension of everything else. Like I, I really think if I look at the music that I listen to and go, go down just kind of my evolution as a human and a musician it's just for me it kind of seems like the last place to kind of end up because it's a very open-ended world but like 
you know, I do something until I figure it out. I know the language, I know the vocabulary. And then it's like, okay, how can I stretch on this? Or like where, how can I kind of do something different so that I'm just not another person that's, you know, it's 2020 and I'm not really interested in trying to sound exactly like Philly Joe. I think that's great to practice because there's so much to be learned from him. And he's one of my favorite musicians, but no one's going like, there is not a drummer alive that's going to play Philly Joe better than Philly Joe did. Right. Yeah. And also Um, decades and decades ago. Yeah. Like, but that being said, someone, a drummer like Dan Weiss has Philly Joe's vocabulary, like memorized to a T. And if he wants to, he can sit down and do that exactly. But he's taken it and kind of rearranged it in some really interesting and, and challenging ways for the instrument. And that's kind of something that um, I kind of view as, as a, like was one of the appeals to me about, you know, the avant-garde music world, because and all of that stuff, there's, there's, there's stuff you can grasp onto that. It's very clear, like where this, uh, where this music might be coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, you know, to me, like, there's no different, there's not a lot of difference to me in what's happening now with like the creative music community than there was 60 years ago. Like, you know, even longer than that, like everybody, you know, if you look at like the real genesis of bebop, there was a huge pushback about that. That music was considered like super radical and a lot of people hated it when they first when it first came out and now this is what we're teaching kids in college yeah fast forward okay so 1945 fast forward 14 15 years later or Ned coleman comes on the scene same shit happens again and then you know 50 years later this is like oh yeah if you want to learn about this we talk about ornette coleman like all so many things that had these huge pushbacks or that people felt were misunderstood are now, are now just part of the standard lexicon. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't really view it as that, as that different. I mean, like there's, there's new ways of kind of reinventing the same stuff, but I don't, you know, with very few exceptions, that's, that's kind of what I view most people is doing right now. Yeah, sure. Totally. Um, do you feel like, the things that you like about the music that you listen to and make, do you feel like what's, what's the breakdown of like brain, brain tingling and like emotion? Like what, what's the, what's it doing for you? I mean, it's not a leading question. I mean, I don't want it to be a leading question. No, no, no. I'm just trying to think like, what is your relationship with the music? So I don't necessarily um, have the compositional approach of being like a storyteller. I know I know a lot of people are like, oh, I want to convey, you know, I'm trying to tell this story through my music, be it with vocals or without. I know a lot of, you know, purely instrumental composers that are like, this piece is inspired by this and I'm trying to get this across. Right. And that's, um, I have the utmost admiration for that. I have never been able to successfully do that. Um, I guess more importantly to me, it's not, it's not, um, it just doesn't feel like a tool that works for me. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's why I want to ask you about it. Like, I mean, I'm interrupting your answer now, but but I think, I think for a lot of people, 
when they're considering like what kind of art they like, you know, to consume and what kind of art they want to make, the consumer or the listener is a part of that equation in a way that I think this like storytelling idea is part of. Like, not that you're making a thing for a person, but like you're getting something, you know, crucial out of creating some kind of an emotion that's that's maybe more or less predictable, you know, like like saying like, here's an emotion, like I want you to have it or something. Um, I'm sure that's like really productive, but I, I get the sense that like, that's not what you're doing. Like maybe I'm just wrong. Um, no, I, you are like, t- to me, I like, I like to think when I'm composing, I like to think about sounds okay, and yeah. development of sounds. Great. And like there are, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I can hear that. I mean, like, I can hear it in the music. Like I, I can, I, I can hear that happening. Um, I don't, I don't listen to a ton of avant-garde music, but I think like one way that my like creative mind works is like, I'm pretty good. I'm usually pretty good at thinking like, what is this person trying to do and trying to like consider the thing like per that question. Um, and I, I definitely don't like understand, like I couldn't, I couldn't guess like how you're making it. Like, I'd like to ask you about it. Um, but uh, but I, I do get the sense that it's like, it's about the sounds and like the sonic experience and not about like a story. Yeah, I mean like for, for that record, I mean, there, there are many, many musicians that kind of influenced my writing on that record. Um, And I really just wanted to kind of take a lot of the ideas from those musicians and kind of explore them with my own vocabulary. But really, I mean, like kind of the big thing about that record for me was I wanted to write some like larger scale works um, with a lot of through composed material where it's not, you know, it's not a typical jazz sense where like, here's the head of the tune here's a solo section or here's a vamp or whatever. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to function more like a contemporary classical piece. And I wanted it to be very linear. Like I wanted, I didn't necessarily want to reprise certain themes, although that happens in some of it. I wanted it to, um, I wanted it to very much be a linear kind of, uh, just like kind of exploration or what of whatever kind of concept or idea that I was working on, but I wanted to keep people guessing like what's composed and what's improvised. Cool. Cool. Um, can you give me an example of like the type of concept that you might use? Like you don't have to say one from that record or you can, but like, like what types of things are you thinking about? So, um, there's a composer, a contemporary classical composer that really kind of just blew up my world as far as like um, what was possible with working with material. And um, their name is Morton Feldman. And Morton Feldman um, was a contemporary of John Cage and, uh, you know, kind of New York based starting in the, maybe the forties, I think the fifties are kind of when his stuff 
really starts becoming more prominent. But a lot of his later works, uh, he died in the mid-80s, mid-late 80s, I think. Uh, I should know all these dates, I'm sorry. But um, like a lot of his later works are incredibly long. Like, I mean, like there are pieces that are between like four to six hours long. Wow. Um, and the material he uses for them is very small. Like he, he tends to function in like four to five note cells, okay. like a, um, like a really, a really cool thing I took away from Morton Feldman is he'll use a cell of like, you know, like say like C, C sharp, D, D sharp. Right. But through, you know, like orchestration, like what instruments he's using, like there's, there's a piece I can think of where it's, um, uh, it's percussion, flute, and piano, and the percussionist is going between like glockenspiel and vibraphone, and the flute player is going between flute, alto flute, bass flute, um, all these different timbres, all these different registers, and like by developing simple ideas using a limited amount of material, but really using like um, like the full range of the piano, like a, a minor second, like if you just have C and C sharp. Yeah. Sounds very different than a minor ninth. Yeah. Sounds very different than if you start spreading that across four octaves right. and across multiple instruments. Yeah. Um, and his pieces are all very quiet. There's no real movement. It's very static music. Um, but I find it absolutely fascinating. And it's some of my favorite stuff to listen to. And yeah. I just really was interested in like, how do you, how do you write something so long with so little material that doesn't, you know, doesn't rely on, on typical. dynamics or like yeah. typical forms of development yeah. um, to, to kind of accomplish that. And so that was, that's something like Morton Feldman, Morton Feldman's probably um, one of the most important musicians for, for me, like as far as my creative yeah. outlet. So your your concepts will be maybe like like and again this is probably like a little reductive but like your concepts will be maybe like kind of rules like like the concept will be like I'm gonna use these notes in like this kind of a way and then like yeah like I um it, it really depends I try not to reuse the same set of rules but I do I do like rules as like a guideline like I'll find um. I just mean like I, I think what I'm trying to ask is like the concept isn't going to be like clouds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah, I just yeah, like, I'll be like it's going to be like theory. Like it's a like it's going to be like a theoretical concept. Sure, or just like a sound, or like a development, or like a like how do I get from A to B? And here's what I I want to accomplish during that. Like how do I do that? But it was it's really fun for me with that group because I don't I don't have a pianist. Um, there's a guitarist, mm -hmm. but I write at the piano and I also don't use chord changes for my music. Yeah. Um, cool. all of those voicings are written out specifically. So it's like, it was really fun to kind of have all these harmony. And I also don't really use tertiary harmony. So it's not anything that can really even be labeled with like, yeah, this is a, you know, C minor seven with these extensions or whatever. It's like, I use a lot of stuff that are based in like fourths or tritones or half steps. Yeah. So if you like, if pressed, if you have to like ask yourself or like say like what you like about it or like 
like why it like thrills you like could could you say like what is the name of like the thing that piques your interest about it is it just like that it's like pushing the boundary like you've said that a few times because I don't even feel that I'm pushing the boundary or that like a lot of the music well I mean I think I don't think what I'm doing is pushing the boundary at all I don't I don't I don't feel that way but what I what I do feel is I want to I want to be able to recreate and convey like the emotions that I experienced like the first time I heard a Morton Feldman piece or like there's a very specific record that had a huge impact on on me and kind of the musical path I went down post North Texas it's by um this trio named Paradoxical Frog which is uh great name Tyshawn Sori Ingrid Laubrock and oh it's a great name yeah Tyshawn Ingrid Laubrock and Chris Davis and the first track on that record uh it's this this piece I believe Chris wrote it called Iron Spider and I had just never heard people play with this level of like intensity and emotion and just like uh i don't i don't really know how to how to describe it but that was a very um the first time i listened to that it was like a very visceral reaction from myself and so i try to write music and improvise in ways that hopefully can channel like these feelings that i got yeah, so it's um, maybe not just like, like intense emotional feelings. Sure, like it's maybe not like about a specific emotion, but just like I don't know, like do you feel like it's like kind of like shocking a certain emotional like center out of yourself or something? Like like is 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 there something about it that's like I don't know, what you said before like I want to recreate the emotional experience that I had and I just I'm I'm wondering if it's less about it. Like, is it, is it an emotion or is it more about the intensity of the emotion? I don't. That's a good question. I think, I think maybe it's the intensity of the emotion because when you, when you hear something for the first time that maybe you're unfamiliar with, um, but it just, it, it hits you hard. I mean, it's like, it's that same feeling I had being like 14 years old and listening to, um, listening to Miles' complete 1964 concert in my mom's car coming home from high school. It's like, like in the last several years, I can count only a handful of times I've felt that same kind of just like, holy shit, knocked knocked to the floor, like reimagine everything that's capable, um, yeah. but also having like a deep emotional impact. Yeah. And I mean... Like Tyshawn, Ingrid, and Chris, I I heard that record in 2011, um, right after I moved to New York. I mean, like Anthony Braxton's music did that to me. Uh, Morton Feldman's music did that to me. Yeah, uh, I can relate to that a little bit. Like, I I I similarly value that. Like when I said before, like it shocks something out of you. Like I can I can sort of relate to this feeling of like experiencing art. Or like, yeah, I mean, right now I'm specifically thinking of um, of a film, um, Inherent Vice. I was trying to think of the title. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's the kind of thing that like, it's not so much about the film as it just like my experience with it, but like, sure. you know, I just felt like 
I had never seen anything even close, like anything like it. And that kind of shock of like, this is a thing that exists. Um, and the how thrilling that feeling is of like, I can't even compare this to anything. Like, I don't even know what to call it. I don't know what genre it is. Like, um, I can't think of anywhere to put it. There's something just kind of like inherently and like, there's something like thrilling about that. Like, is that maybe like a little piece of it? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, there are films that I have that same reaction to. Like um, the first time I saw Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, obviously is like a, horribly depressing movie but you you know i left that movie just being like holy shit like i didn't know film could really do this i also kind of felt like that the first time i ate indian food like (laughs) like i'm not really kidding like it's kind of funny but like i mean i didn't eat indian food until i was an adult because again i was raised in like just a small-minded type of a culture sure i was raised in like a very narrow but like, I love that feeling of like new, like, what is this? Cause I have that like curiosity thing. And when I like can find something that just like makes my paradigm have to like jolt in a new way, it's, there's, there's not a lot that's better than that. Yeah. And I, I think, I think for me, like as a, as a composer, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, uh, ever but but i do like i will say i actively shy away from like if there's something that i think has been done a lot like um i will i will probably not be as inclined to like take that approach yeah uh, but i go ahead no i just like i want to i want to put myself in situations compositionally where it's like I feel uncomfortable in what I'm doing. Like I, I have this idea and I want to push myself to be like, can I make this work? Like, is this, can I put this, these puzzle pieces together? Like um, the day before, you know, the fucking world started ending. Um, I had a gig with a new trio uh, and we were premiering all this brand new music I wrote and it's a piano trio. Um and like the basis for this music was my um, my love of, of Messiaen and Scriabin and like 20th century classical piano music. Um, but also drawing from like my studies with Taishan and his piano trio and just a, a bunch of other stuff. But I set out to be like, how do I, how do I essentially write like an open-ended piano piece that sounds like it's drawing on the same kind of uh aesthetics of of like uh of people like Messiaen or Scriabin but but make it also have the same thing of like this is going to be open for improvisation but not in the typical you know here's the head here's the form like how do I incorporate that inside of this while still making this a like a long form piece the, the gig we played, I think, was a little over 65 minutes, and we only played two pieces. Wow. Uh, so it was like each piece was about half an hour. Um, and, it, and each piece was long. Each piece, I think the piano parts for like one of them were like nine or ten pages long. But like that's that's the kind of situation um, compositionally I like putting myself in. I like, I like setting up a problem um, and trying to figure out how to solve it. And like as far as like 
am I doing new shit or am I reinventing the wheel? I don't care. I just want to figure out a, a way that I'm happy with like yeah. solving this problem that maybe might not be the most obvious way to go about doing it to, to someone else or maybe something that's heard less. I don't know. I can, um, no, I can totally relate to that. Like, you know, as you've been talking, <laughs> I've just been thinking like, you know, I just, I'm, I just finished, I'm putting out a record like next Friday and, uh, right, I got a, I got a Facebook ad for it. Really? <laughs> I've been like experimenting with Facebook ads and I feel so like, um, it's like a brand new medium. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm, the feeling. I'm trying to figure it out, but, um, that's cool. You saw one of my ads in the wild. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like so many of these things you're talking about, I feel like I, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> like, um, obviously it's totally, it would sound totally different. You know, someone listening to my record, listening to your record. Um, but like, I, I relate so much to what you're saying. Um, you know, when I'm writing, like when I'm sitting in my, this right here on this vinyl <laughs> that I'm on, that's squeaking around. Um, you know, my favorite thing to do, and, and I would say maybe the only thing that's consistent, really consistent for me compositionally is like, I know that I'm like, I know that I've reached an important point in my composition when I've discovered a problem that I don't know how to solve. Yep. Like that is, that is like the thing I'm looking for. Um, yeah. And, and those like, can either be beautiful moments or unbelievably frustrating moments. It's the best though, because I, because I know, like I've learned, I've learned that I will solve it. Um, and I've learned that in the process of solving it, I will write something that I could never have set out to write. Um, exactly. Which is the entire thrill of composing for me. Um, yeah, so I, I totally get that. Um, yeah, and I, and I also feel like, you know, I, this thing that I'm doing with this record that I'm putting out right now is like, um, I'm really trying to make it like a mixed medium. Right, I, uh, that's awesome. really cool. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was the goal. I mean, that was my goal. Like when I, when I, you know, it's called masks and it's pretty, you know, it's not, it's not very mysterious. Like, you know, my mom had the narcissistic personality disorder. I was in a religion that I would call maybe a cult now. Um, you know, like, I mean, uh, I was like kind of discovering like, brand new ways to think about gender um, that were that were new to me, certainly not new to like people, but new to me. And, you know, I got the sense that like these kinds of experiences of like rediscovery um, are ubiquitous, you know, we all are experiencing them. And was trying to think of a way to like make it as big and accessible without being like it's really programmatic in some ways but also like I've tried in some really specific ways to make it like um really open like really up for interpretation so that's I'm trying to do something that I haven't really seen somebody do but it's like all of the pieces of it are like extremely accessible. Right. 
but the but the whole of it is like amorphous maybe yeah. i think yeah no and like that's you know that's what i i yeah i don't think it's like i don't think it's unique to any one genre and that's that's i mean like you know i i listen to everything i don't just you know i've i've never been the person that's just checking out one thing maybe i went through a period of that with with jazz but like um jazz is so big know. jazz is so many things yeah well and like you know i was i was obsessed with it for a while cuz i wanted to figure it out and then it gave me the tools to figure out so much other stuff but like you know i'm t- we're here talking about all you know or i i i feel like i'm talking about like you know, this deep contemporary classical music and like avant-garde jazz and creative music. And like, honestly, I think the record that I've, the records that I've listened to the most through quarantine have been like, you know this band Beach House? No. Oh my God, they're incredible. It's like this uh, like electronic pop rock kind of thing, but like also very reminiscent of like the music in Twin Peaks. Cool. Uh, I've been listening to them a ton and then I've been listening, I've been going back and re-listening to the Cranberries a lot. The <laughs> listening. talking about the Cranberries too. Who, who is? Yeah, Will, Will Flynn. That I oh man, yeah, because they, I mean, they're great. And then like uh, going back and revisiting like My Funny Valentine, or not My Funny Valentine, My Bloody Valentine, very different. Yeah. Uh, are, are, you, are you are you familiar with that, with that I'm man? I, sh- I should, I... I feel like I started my musical exploration so late compared to some people. Um, but yeah, I feel totally overwhelmed by how much music there is in the world. There's a ton. They're like a, like an early nineties kind of like predecessor to shoegaze indie rock kind of thing. But they had, cool. if you check them out, you'll recognize a lot of their songs. Cause a lot of it was on the radio. That's uh, great. But yeah. So I mean, like I've been listening to like, pop and rock music for most of this uh yeah this quarantine so i don't know if you like like to get philosophical about this kind of stuff in the same way that i do but do you do you, is there anything you want to say about like why like thinking about and making art in this kind of way like is valuable um valuable to me or valuable in general either or both um i mean honestly like valuable to me because it's it's like it's the only thing i know how to do like that's yeah. if i'm being sincere with myself like i mean i think it's inevitable think, for you it's like it doesn't matter what the value is it's just like you have to do it yeah and i think i think part of the reason well i mean one of one of the many reasons i was so unhappy in north texas is i was you know i was beginning my kind of journey into the stuff that I inevitably ended up kind of working in, but I was still like trying to maintain this identity is like, Oh, I've got to be this, you know, straight ahead modern jazz drummer so I can fit in in North Texas. And I still really want to be in the one o'clock. So I also got to rein it back even more and be a big band drummer and mm-hmm. do all this stuff yeah. and move to New York and still like trying to, you know, do this thing that I don't think I was totally sold on anymore. And that was kind of a big wake up call for me. And it was like, uh, uh, yeah, I think you're right with like the word inevitable. Like I, it's valuable to me because this is, this is the way, like, I'm not trying to prove anything. I so don't, 
give a shit about any of any of that. Like this is just this is what I'm happy doing. And it means a lot to me. And it's it brings me the most joy out of anything I've known in life. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as um as how it's valuable as the whole, I think not that I necessarily believe music has to be challenging. And I think my view of what is challenging music and what isn't challenging music has shifted the longer I've lived in the avant-garde world, because now I hear stuff that some people might think is super out that I'm just like, Oh yeah, like this is totally normal. This is great. It's a but language I, you've learned. It's a language I've learned, but I, I do, I do think there is value with, with challenging people. Um, and, and again, not that I think, it should be viewed as challenging, but I think people need to be brought outside of their comfort zone. Cause I know, I know for me, a lot of the social values that I now hold very, very close. Um, I don't know that I necessarily had those until I started being exposed to different kinds of music and things that challenged me more. Like, I don't think I'd be aware of, um, a lot of stuff happening around the world regarding like poverty and inequality and, and whatever social issue you want to name. If I hadn't have gotten so involved in Brazilian music or Indian music. And I, you know, I looking back on it now, it's, it's kind of weird to me that at a, at a school like North Texas, that was so, so much this, mecca for um studying and understanding black american music that it was an overwhelmingly white populace and that it was an overwhelmingly white faculty and i don't think that really clicked when i was at north texas i think it took me moving up here and i think a lot a lot more social issues kind of became more apparent to me the more i really obviously started learning the deeper history of the music, like the shit you you don't talk about as much in class regarding like, you know, whatever, that's a whole other tangent, but like why, why this music even exists in the first place yeah. um, as a result of, of, of struggle and oppression. But then, you know, when I started really getting involved in, you know, more avant-garde music, really looking at music that was being created by people that were, already oppressed and then being on the fringe of that uh, trying to sustain a music career um that were you know we're just getting it from both ends yeah um and i i think you know just being exposed to all this different stuff it makes you view the world through a different lens it opens your mind yeah um you're saying like you're saying every everything it's so perfect Um, oh god (laughs) no i'm not i'm not kidding like this is this is why i do this podcast um yeah no i i totally agree you know when i when i'm talking about like why it's valuable i think i think i mean the same thing like the same and and also why i'm obsessed with this conversation about creativity because the same part of your brain that you have to apply to ask yourself questions about like, how did this music come to be? Is there a certain way that I'm meant to understand it? Or is it, is, is the paradigm totally different? And I'm supposed to, I'm, you know, I'm, there's, there's not a specific way I'm supposed to think about it or, 
you know, whatever, um, whatever the thing is, whatever the medium is like the same process that you have to go through to like ask yourself those questions and consider those things you, you can and should apply to people. You can and should apply to groups, to entire ideas, entire ideologies. Um, and, and I think that part of the reason why art and creativity is important is because it, it teaches us how to, um, to speak that language of like questioning and considering like the breadth and depth of like um, the human condition and the human experience. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I know for me, it was, it was an eye opener in a lot of ways. And, uh, um, you know, what really, what really honestly turned me on to the avant-garde scene, like outside of listening to the music was getting involved in the community, uh, a couple of things. When I, when I started trying to like kind of break into that community, the same kind of barriers that I felt like were in place with, with the kind of more straight ahead community didn't seem to exist. Like the ego seemed gone. Yeah. And I think I, this is kind of a chicken or an egg situation. But the other thing that I became painfully aware of was that there were a lot more women playing this music. Interesting. Um, and for compared to like the straight ahead jazz world. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, was something that I, I guess I was aware of, but I, I feel like for me, it was something that until I saw it in practice, didn't, doesn't, didn't resonate as heavily. Like, um, obviously it's still, it's still not 50, 50. And it's not this kind of dream utopia that, that I want. But I will say in, in the avant-garde community, it is becoming a lot rarer to go to a bill and see it be all men. Like most, most of the bands that I really like, um, the gender dynamic is, is split relatively evenly. Like actually one of, I mean, like one of my main teachers is, um, is a woman, not that I get like, or should receive accolades for that, whatever. Yeah. But like a, a huge portion of the musicians that I idolize and look up to and ones that I have reached out to study have, have not been male. Yeah. And like, I don't know that that's as readily available and, um, or visible. I'm sure, I'm sure it's there. I, and to be totally fair, like my, knowledge of like what's going on in the straight ahead world at this point and especially outside of new york is pretty limited because i don't have a ton of interaction with that but i will say from my experience switching women. scenes there are fewer women teaching jazz <laughs> uh i'm yeah like i you know just trying to make make it aware that i am at, at a certain point a little ignorant of that yeah, that world because I kind of I don't want to say I totally checked out of the straight ahead world, but I yeah. you know kind of made my switch. But yeah, I don't I don't know. It felt um, it made me aware of a lot more stuff and um, just seeing for me just like seeing 
women musicians just being like absolute badasses and absolute like at the top of their field was something I don't want to say it was new, but it it just became like much more present when like you look at uh last year the macarthur genius grant winner was mary halverson and it absolutely should have been she's a fucking phenomenal guitarist and an amazing human yeah um but i mean like you know i don't know that i would have these same ideas about about a lot of things that that i hold now had it not been to my exposure through all these different yeah musical idioms and just like I feel the same way. Like uh, art, art is like an entry point for it, art has felt to me like an entry point for understanding people in different ways. Um, which is why I like, which is why I think it's, it's valuable. I mean, there's plenty of reasons why it's valuable, but that's why it's valuable to me. Like that's, that's my main reason for caring about it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it made me a better person and it still leads me to try harder to be a better person. And like, well, I think this is a bit of a projection, but you know, maybe I'll just say like, you know, I, I think it's easy for people to look at things that are abstract and avant-garde, you know, in, in any medium and think like, you know, maybe this is kind of sterile or like, this isn't about people, like it's clearly not for me. Um, and, you know, my, my like, I don't believe that, um, which is why I wanted to have you talk about it because, um, because really like your, it sounds like, you know, your motivations um, and the things that you, that you are getting out of it are, are like extraordinarily human and like very personal. Um, and not like sterile at all. Like, if anything, the opposite. I mean, yeah. There's, you know, obviously I'm biased on this, but there are, there are records that I would I would recommend to people. And you know, my my kind of thought process is, man, like if this uh, if this doesn't make any if this doesn't make you feel anything, like I don't know what to tell you. I don't care if it makes you really angry like this should because you hate it so much like you should feel something from this it should uh but i you know there's you know there are all those those interviews with with john coltrane especially in the later years where people are asking him like so are you are you angry when you're playing it sounds like like you're really angry and he's he's very calm in his response and just like no like that's just yeah that's what i'm expressing that's what i'm hearing and i think i think there is a misconception that especially in the, you know, the avant-garde world that there's a lot of maybe anger or, or uh, that is like very in your face or very gruff or whatever. And I I definitely think there is an aspect to that music. And if you look at the uh, social and political reasons that led to this kind of music evolving and coming from more mainstream jazz, it becomes way more apparent, but like, I think a lot of it is beautiful. Like there's a just the sheer force of emotion that some of these people are conveying. I can understand how it could be um, be like viewed as as anger or something, but I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't yeah. hear it that way anymore. Well, in regard, I don't know if I ever heard it that way. Yeah, I. I mean, something that I just keep thinking about and that I haven't like really said 
and maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be said, uh, whatever, I'm saying it. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, um, and, I, and I'm talking about people who aren't artists, um, have the idea that they have a difficult time separating or considering the lines between art and entertainment and kind of view art with the, with the paradigm that it's supposed to entertain me. And sometimes that means it's supposed to make me cry. And sometimes that means it's supposed to make me mad or like teach me some kind of a lesson or, you know, get me fired up about a certain thing. But, but nevertheless, it's here to like, you know, to entertain me. And um, it's, it's another reason why I like, you know, this artifice question, like sometimes it's just, I mean, you know this, like I'm saying it, I'm saying it for the listener. <laughs> Um, but like, you know, the, the, the intent is just often, it's so different from what, you know, the listener's first guess might be. And the kind of the questioning is like the, the questioning and the difficulty of it is sometimes like the point, you know, <laughs> like, great you're having this experience like that's exactly like what's supposed to happen and then like you know maybe then you maybe ask yourself some questions about it and you know if you want to learn how to enter this conversation i i agree and i mean like i you know i think i do think a lot of that has to do with um kind of idea and trend of like the dumbing down of the populace um with like i don't know social media like i mean like good lord look at our political situation now like the the value of education or or something as like <laughs> something like science like people wanting to disagree with science because they read one thing on the on the internet that somehow makes them more knowledgeable about the subject than someone who spent 20 years at a university what like uh i feel like it's harder for i feel like it's becoming harder for people to be challenged and to be taken out of their bubble and exposed to something new yeah simply because of how we digest information now Mm, yeah yeah like like if it's not if it's not i want immediate gratification as to whether or not i like don't like understand don't understand this thing it has to check these boxes to align with what i with with what i believe for me to like it and if i can't do like a quick search on twitter where i find you know 140 characters that support either side of my view of this topic like it's not for me yeah and that kind of mentality just doesn't fucking align with art. Yeah. Um, and I don't really, I really don't want to say anything like negative about, about the population in general, but I, I do think, uh, I also don't want to like throw out conspiracy theories, but I do think a certain level of that is by design. Um, sure. I mean, like, you know, I have a weird relationship with conspiracy theories because of like growing up Mormon. Sure. Um, 
and, and, you know, I would say like, absolutely. I mean, and whether or not like the design is like an, an intention is, is also a question like, you know, sure. my particular background with my, my mom and church, you know, has also given me like, I also am real comfortable in that duality, you know, which is the other reason why like masks is an interesting thing for me. Cause I can, I feel like I can empathize like pretty whole, pretty wholly with like either, either question. Um, and can step into like, you know, a person's individual like goodness or morality, you know, per their paradigm um, and see that it's like absolutely pure. Um, and then someone can disagree on every single point, but like the, the quality of their intent is exactly the same. You know, I just, I have seen that with my own eyes again and again and again. Um, which I mean, yeah, I like, again, it's just why I have this podcast so that I can talk with people who are in the habit of asking questions, thinking creatively, and just, ha you know, ask my guests to talk about their experiences um, and how you're kind of seeing the world and synthesizing things. Because yeah, I mean, that's, that's the point. It's, it's not like, from my perspective, it's not like a, an, an indulgent kind of a thing. It's like this stuff freaking matters, I think. Right. And, and, and like, yeah, I think that's another thing is I think a lot of people can view any kind of creative music as being self-indulgent. And I do, I do think there is an aspect of that. Like I, that definitely exists because humans are humans. And, yeah. um, but also a certain part of me is like, so what? I feel the same way. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're going through, cause yeah, I also feel like I can, I can think creative creatively about that person and think like they might have a totally like totally badass reason for being self-indulgent. Like, you know, someone who's coming out of, you know, a lot of trauma, like maybe that, that act of self-indulgence is like defiant in and of itself, or maybe it's not, maybe it's totally simple, but like it just, the, I don't, the, the point is, I don't know you know so like the the idea of like making some assessment about anything is just like uh i don't know arrogant i agree man there's this um there's this really great interview with uh with jim black i don't remember when it's from i think it's still on youtube it's like it's short it's like two and a half minutes long but uh, someone's asking him a question about like um like something very broad like how do you listen to music and I remember seeing this when I was maybe 19 or 20 and just kind of like had like an aha moment. Um, nobody can see that. I just did yeah. the light bulb light finger snapping. Yeah. Um, but like uh, he answers that question. He's like, I try, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't think Jim will ever hear this, but uh, <laughs> he, he says something to the effect of, um, uh, I try to listen to music like a novice listener. Yeah. If I put on a record and I don't like it, I take it off, but I say like, that's not the right record for today. I'll try again later. Yeah. And, uh, and something about that really struck with me because I think for me, a lot of my favorite records, like a lot of my Desert Island records now are records that the first time I listened to I absolutely hate it. 
like 100% hated and was like, how does anybody find this good? And so I think for me, I'm very hesitant to listen to stuff and be like, this is bad. This is wrong. I do not like this because I've been proven wrong more times than I've been proven right. I totally feel the same way. And I feel that way about like entire mediums as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've just learned to assume that if I don't, like if I, if I really quickly don't like it, it's probably because I don't get it. Like it's probably because I just don't understand. (laughs) Um, Like I think it's pretty rare that I'll, that I'll be like, no, I think I just actually don't like this. And even if I listen to it or ate it or watched it, you know, a hundred times, I would still feel the same way. Like it's, it, I, I will almost always assume like, I don't understand this well enough. Um, yeah, you know, I think we've done it. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think, yeah, I think that's a good way to describe this. Um, okay. I always ask everybody at the very end on this very particular day, what is your dream collaboration? And it can involve, it can involve anyone. They can be not alive. It can be any medium. Who, who do you want to collaborate with? Oh man, my, my dream collaboration well, I would I would love to just meet Anthony Braxton. I um, I've never met him. I've never seen him play live, and he's still alive. He will be seventy five this year. Uh, he's one of my biggest influences. Uh, very very in a lot of ways, very responsible for um, a lot of the musical decisions that I've that I've made and career decisions that I've made. And I would. I would really love to meet him and talk to him and hang out with him and maybe one day play with him. That would be a dream of mine. That's great. Um, the last thing is tell everybody where to find your things. Uh, sure. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a band camp page. Uh, it's Colin Hinton, C-O-L-I-N-H-I-N-T-O-N. I have a website, uh, colinhinton.com still spelled the same way. Uh, I have no gigs coming up. Uh, Neither does anybody. So, yeah, so uh, um, that was supposed to be a like, joke. <laughs> Zoom got a little like when you were saying oh. your name, so it's it's one L, Colin with one L, and then Hinton is I H I N T O N. Yes. Uh, ColinHinton dot com is that what you said? Yeah, I believe. Well, hold on, let me double check. I'm like ninety nine percent positive that's my website. Slightly embarrassed that I don't have that memorized. You know, we go through like times and seasons of digging into this or that thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just callinhinton.com. And then I've got a Bandcamp page, uh, two records out under my own name, uh, third one coming out maybe later this year. I don't know. It was supposed to come out later this year, but we'll see. Now we're all, it's a, it's a collaborative group. Um, but we're kind of all dragging our feet because we don't know what, the immediate future looks like well we'll we'll look out for it whenever it's coming um so let's say bye to the listener and then um we can say bye to each other uh colin thank you so much for talking with me this was awesome i loved it yeah this was a lot of fun it's really great to catch up and just like have these kind of really deep conversations about all of this thanks i i i super appreciate it it's my favorite thing in the whole world well, this is great. I'm really glad you're doing this. This is this is awesome. Thanks. Bye. All right. <laughs> Take care.
Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.